Hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of October 2021, which means it is once again time for our third annual Kyle's Killer October. Uh, Essentially what this means is uh, Kyle is going to be in charge of all of our programming decisions uh, throughout the month of October uh, because Kyle has some interest in the spooky sensibilities. Uh, He's a big horror fan. Uh, So the theme this month, though, Kyle, you want to introduce that to the folks at home? Yeah, we're uh, covering a very niche, small pocket of the uh, horror genre, which is horror musicals. Uh, I guess it's a horror musical, technically. Uh, it seems like such a strange thing. Or dark musicals, maybe. Yeah, it, it's difficult to say if it's a true genre that is horror musicals. However, like upon closer inspection, uh, it seems that there is a significant niche for this because we managed to find no less we found four movies for this Mm -hmm. month one for each week but i'm sure there are several others i mean nightmare before christmas you could argue that that's a christmas movie but it's certainly a spooky musical so i would imagine it you know you could make the argument horror musical quote i can make Um, that argument but yeah but yeah it seems like these like these particular tones like like find a way like they find each other where like the the notion of having like a, a kind of somewhat like morbid or uh something along those lines like musical that has maybe a cheery tone but like a, a risque subject matter doesn't actually seem that foreign a concept honestly i think willy wonka i think that would probably fall into this category as well where it is a music like i would argue that it is there's enough numbers in it for it to be considered a musical um and the tone of the film is very dark it it, it has a very morbid tone to it oh yes and it is most certainly a musical and yeah like all those those kids like in particular like when you get into like Faruka salt and and her song it's like it is a typical musical fair where it's a a a character loudly proclaiming their their wants and needs and and emotional state and then it's punctuated by like something truly awful happening she gets sent to the furnace she'd be sizzling yeah, like a much. sausage yeah <laughs> i need to rewatch that movie it's been a long time since i've seen it yeah it's a it's an excellent film it's an excellent film <laughs> oh i forgot uh, about so, the uh, the uh, i forgot about the boat sequence that's one of the most terrifying things in in cinema history uh, no argument there. Uh, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree as a child seeing that movie, probably in school, honestly, with like a substitute at the helm or something. Yes, that, that was a truly traumatic moment in cinema history uh, for me in particular. And I'm sure like multiple generations of children the world over. Yeah. <laughs> just that image of Gene Wilder shrieking, like just like yeah. piercing your soul. <laughs> Any signs that they are slowing? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's like I wonder if that was like improvised or something. Because it's like, bear in mind, there are children on the set. It's like you know, this this will really set them off. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. He might he might have been a jokester. I'm not I'm not too sure. He's that was always his charm. Is that he had that like really disarming quality to him, where it's like I don't know quite where he's at. It, it, that's funny, but I'm not. I don't feel good laughing about that, but that was funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so last week, uh, we had a catching up on cinema for me in particular. Uh, so Kyle introduced me 
to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is, of course, uh, one of the most famous musicals, stage or or f- film. Uh, and I had never seen it before, so that was a true catching up experience for me. But uh, this week, um, Kyle, it was kind of a, a mutual decision, so Kyle still technically got to pick the movie. But uh, this week, Kyle actually caught up on the film in question. Uh, so, Kyle, what what film did we review this week? Uh, Little Shop of Horrors from 1986, uh, directed by Frank Oz. Ever heard of him? Um, <laughs> yeah, this has uh, quite quite the cast. Uh, we have Rick Moranis as our lead, uh, Ellen Green playing Audrey, uh, Vincent Gardenia, who is, what's the name of the shopkeeper's name? I can't remember his name. Uh, Mr. Mushnick, if I remember Mu- right. Mushnick. Uh, yeah. Levi, Levi Stubbs is uh, Audrey, too. Um, Steve Martin. Uh, who is my favorite part of the film? And then we've got Shocker, Shocker, um, <laughs> Tashina Arnold, Tisha Campbell, who I'm familiar with, uh, Tisha Campbell, um, Jim Belushi, ever heard of him? John Candy, Christopher Guest, and uh, begrudgingly Bill Murray. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, folks, let me disclose: I do like Bill Murray, but I do not like Bill Murray in this movie. Yeah, uh, that that can kind of came as a surprise because uh, folks at home, me me saying that Steve Martin was a shocker as a uh, Kyle's favorite part of the movie uh, comes from the fact that it's it's well documented. Yes, uh, that, that Kyle is not the biggest fan of Steve Martin. No, um, you were a, a Chevy Chase household in your earliest years, is that right? Yes, very 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 big Chevy Chase household. Uh, Steve Martin was not on our radar. We're also uh, kind of a big Bill Murray, uh, a big big a uh, big bill murray family uh, i think my dad's favorite comedy to this day is what about bob okay uh, that that is actually kind of funny because if memory serves frank oz directed that oh nice yeah so connections revolutions revolutions um but yeah it came as a surprise to me that uh i would i will say straight up uh yes steve martin's musical number dentist is uh, probably my favorite moment in the whole movie uh, always has been since i was a very young child um but yeah, just the fact that Kyle is not a Steve Martin fan, uh, while I know him to be a Bill Murray fan, it, he kind of like pulled a switcheroo on me. He pulled a 360 on me, <laughs> uh, to quote Last Action Hero. Um, but yeah, uh, this this movie was a big fucking deal when it came out. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it, but uh, I saw this from a very early age. So this is a, a movie this month that I actually know very well. Um, and yeah, this this was kind of akin to like a, a Cats or a Phantom of the Opera uh, in terms of its like cultural footprint. Probably not as big as either of those, um, but still quite quite impressive. Uh, so the the origins of this film are fascinating to say the least. Uh, so the original Little Shop of Horrors property was a 1960 Roger Corman film that uh, is known mostly for I mean obviously the the imagery of the plant of the the Audrey Two plant, but um, I think it was called Audrey Jr. in that film. But uh, also just uh, the fact that supposedly it was it was made in three days, and it was done as a bet apparently. Like a producer friend of Roger Corman uh, bet him that he couldn't con- conceivably produce a film regardless of quality. Just like you couldn't make a movie in three days if you tried. So Roger Corman being Roger Corman, he was like, uh, I think I can. 
And I enunciate very clearly because I am Roger Corman and this is how I speak in interviews. So like I actually watched the behind the scenes of him talking about the making of this movie. He's like, I got the crew together on Monday through Wednesday and we rehearsed the shooting of the film. And then on Thursday and Friday, we completed the film and it was rushed to theaters. It was not a success, but we got it done. Roger, Roger Corman is an immensely fascinating individual. There's a reason why I have a practiced uh, impersonation of him, because I find him very fascinating. Trevor, I hate to break it to you. That's not Roger Corman that you're doing. That's 100% George Takai. Well, that's the thing. That, that's what I figured out, is that all you, all you do is George Takai. Like, that's literally all it is. is it, he has a very similar speech pattern. Uh, only difference is George Takai has more dramatic breathing. He has, he has more, he has more, ha. <laughs> like, so it's like, we got the crew on Monday through Wednesday, <laughs> ah, Thursday and uh, Friday. It, it's like a, George Takei is like Roger Corman and Jeff Goldblum had a baby. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can see that. But no, you're absolutely right. The, the impression is largely based on the foundation of George Takei. Yeah. Um, but more people need to know what roger corman sounds like because he, he his his voice is it's it's mellifluous uh, to use words from uh uh ah, real monsters but anyway uh the 1960 version of the movie is uh famous for being shot in three days and i think being the first screen credit of jack nicholson kind of a big deal uh, uh just <laughs> ever heard of him um <laughs> Actually, I think he had uh, a few screen credits uh, before that, but it was a very early, very early one for him. I'm sure he played, you know, cowboys and some westerns back in the day. Like, He's I'm old sure. as fuck. You forget, like, he he is an actor. I did, I did say cowboys and westerns, right? Yeah, yeah he is old as fuck. I, he ha- doesn't have an acting credit. I was actually looking it up because of the uh, Corman film. He hasn't had an acting credit since 2010. Good for him. You know, if if... If that's not what brings you pleasure, if you don't feel you got that juice, then maybe hang it up. I mean, that's that's kind of what happened with Sean Connery. Like he he said after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, like fuck this shit, <laughs> fuck fuck this shit, I'm done. <laughs> I'm gonna go drink in Scotland, <laughs> in my castle in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> but it actually made me happy that he hung it up when he did, because like there's there's few things worse than seeing you know the old cowboy trot out for one last gunfight and just have it not work out it's like i don't want to see sean connery get torn to shreds in the form of a shitty movie again someone (laughs) someone needs to stop uh someone needs to stop clint eastwood because he's just not stopping he's just gonna keep going he'll die that that cry macho uh, i listened to uh, brad from the cinema speak uh, podcast i listened to his review of cry macho and that's that sounded rough Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't appear in that many movies lately. Like I think the Mule and Cry Macho had a had a couple years between them. But yeah, that, he's he's getting up there, man. Uh, okay. Speaking of I, getting, I, uh, I speaking of getting up there, I saw a. Uh, I was gonna send it to you. But I'm like, I'm sure you've already seen it. Uh, photos of Indi- of uh, Indiana Jones. Photos of Harrison Ford on the set of the new Indiana Jones movie, and he is looking really old, like really, really yeah. old. Yeah. 
If memory serves, uh, I seem to remember hearing reports that he was injured on the set. Shocker. Yet, a- yet again. I mean, that happened on Star Wars as well. It's like, man, like you can't go like shattering parts of your person like literally every time you go out to make a movie, <laughs> bud. Like that's really not good at this stage of life. Well, it's like it's not even like he's doing Jackie level jackie chan level uh stunts like some crazy shit where it's like that was worth him getting injured because that was awesome it's just like no i was jumping from one platform to the other and i shattered my femur oh it's not even that bud (laughs) it's not even that it's like yeah so i was on the set of a star wars the the jj kid he's making a new star wars i'm in it by the way and i was running up a ramp you know to get on the the, the falcon and i tripped and i tweaked my knee and it just split in two and i was like chewy get me to the hospital that's that's your body telling you to stop doing that i i literally think it was just like him running up a ramp like not even jumping not not hurtling himself not like human cannonballing that shit he was just like doing a ginger jog up a, a, a slight incline and just <laughs> my leg do you think he was doing the the arnold schwarzenegger run in terminator 2 when they bust sarah out of the mental institution and he's just like doing his run down the hallway as oh yeah the, the, the trotting wall, wall holding he's got <laughs> two, two guns, cones yeah. of ice cream and he yeah. doesn't want to drop them yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, one of I, the f- know ex- I have the image in my head one of next to brian cox in that keanu reeves movie we did one of the funniest runs in cinema history yeah, look it up, folks. I actually posted a GIF of it ages ago because I, I had to immortalize. The world that needs moment. to know. The world. The needs world to needs to know yeah. that Brian Cox uses the windmill arm motion to gain yeah. speed. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. But Arnold, I, I will say this much: like, and then we can get off. Holy this. shit! <laughs> yeah, we are in the weeds already. We haven't even. It made to me movie. so happy to see uh, Arnold in uh, the Expendables three, because they figured out a way to do action scenes with him. Basically, they made him into a turret. Where just they had people run up to him and he just blast them, so he doesn't move for nobody. He just pivots, so he doesn't even have to like plant and turn. He just like stands in place and slightly turns his hips from side to side, and people run into his bullets. It's like that's how you do it. Like if you can't move no more, just give him a big ass gun and have people step to him. Yeah, just run into my fist. <laughs> <laughs> no, mama, he killed himself. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, going back to the origins of the film in question. Uh, so, like I said, it started out as a extraordinarily low budget 1960 Roger Corman film. Uh, I think it was made for like 25 grand or something, and this was a 25 million dollar movie. Um, by the time we get to 1986, but then uh, flash forward um, many decades, a couple decades, in fact, uh, to I think it was like 82, uh, and we get a an off-Broadway uh, sta- like musical stage adaptation of that 1960 B-movie <laughs> um, written by two people whose names uh, and work have touched entire generations of, of, of children or adults, <laughs> just, just many people. Uh, uh, so it, phrasing, it's important. Phrasing! Uh, <laughs> Are we not doing phrasing anymore? <laughs> uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Uh, wrote the the songs and music and story uh, for the stage adaptation, and the two this this duo uh, gave us some of the like most incredible musicals from the eighties, like Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and I think they worked on Beauty and the Beast, like stuff that 
Kyle's making a face, and I, I slightly agree with you because while I was exposed to those things, they clearly I was more in, I was more fascinated in things like Godzilla and Transformers than I was any of the things I just mentioned. Yeah, but not there, me. There but are, I understand that you would be into that more. There are contemporaries of ours who this <laughs> means the world. Like this was this was part of their world to say the least. Like this, the these particular Disney films were like their shit yeah um so point is that the musical duo of alan menken and howard ashman big big fucking deal uh and then we have a 25 million dollar budget and frank oz uh who is of course part of the jim henson company mm-hmm. um and it's really fun playing the 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 connections and revolutions game with uh, frank oz because in terms of like powerhouse relationships in the film industry the man probably has like his his address book is probably one of the most powerful in Hollywood. Yeah. Like, no joke. He's been to more awesome dinner parties than most people in Hollywood, I would say. Yeah, precisely. Like, Kyle, Kyle gets it. So, put it this way. Jim Henson. He's, he's basically the right-hand man to Jim Henson. Star Wars. He's the voice of Yoda. <laughs> Frank Oz has definitely been to Coppola's estate. He has had dinner with Coppola, if I had to guess. And oh, probably yeah. Spielberg for that matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he directed. Oh, he was involved with the, the Blues Brothers. So John Landis, that's another powerhouse name of the era. Um, trading places that you know the Landis and Aykroyd connection is very mm-hmm. much a thing that's been well documented. Uh, he's made the Muppets movies. Like, like he worked on Labyrinth. Like again, the Star Wars connection. The man knows people <laughs> like like the man works for people he knows people he's a massive influence in the film industry um and i think i think he was absolutely probably the perfect choice uh, mm-hmm. for directing this film like given given the requirements of it because like he has experience with musicals in the form of some of the earlier muppet movies i think the muppets take manhattan came out before this so he's he has background with puppetry and musicals that's mm-hmm. what we need um but apparently like scorsese and spielberg were both courted at one point uh, to work on this movie um, um, both of whom probably could have done it but i don't think they fit as perfectly as frank oz does i i think scorsese was in a darker he was in a darker area at this time like this is this was a different kind of uh a different kind of film than he would have wanted to do um i think spielberg would have done a cool job i would be interested i'd be interested in seeing that well, I think it's timely because, like, I don't know how many times this has come up on the podcast uh, over the past month or so, but he's got that West Side Story remake coming out really soon. And Spielberg even does? back, when, yes. Oh, really? And even back when you and I were talking about the Indiana Jones movies just last month, uh, even back in the '80s, apparently he was itching to do a musical, and as far as I know, to date, he still hasn't until hmm. West Side Story drops pretty soon. I'm trying but to think of anyway, where... yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so the last element, uh, aside from our cast, which we'll get into when we get there, uh, is uh, David Geffen, uh, who is the producer of this film. Again, another powerhouse name in the industry. Kind of incredible. Just the sheer, just all the names involved in the making of this movie. Um, so DreamWorks, the company, the the film production company, uh, has a has a like an acronym below it skg and it stands for spielberg katzenberg and geffen and that would be the david geffen 
So mm. put it, he's he's on that tier in terms of influence in the film industry. Uh, as far as I know, he was also one of the principal backers of of Cats. Mm. Again, kind of a big deal, not to me personally, but we all saw that that VHS. Oh yeah. Uh, Oh. That that uh like mail order VHS version of it. We all saw that commercial back in the day. Oh, I wanted to rent it because it was on. I think it was on the trailer. It was one of the trailers on Page Master, I believe. Was uh, that's what it was on. Um, and I was at the. I remember the blockbuster with my mom. Like, can we rent Cats? And she's just like, you want to rent Cats? And I'm like, yeah, it looks like fun. She's like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're, you're, <laughs> we're not renting. Get Mortal Kombat again. You're you're renting Mortal Kombat again. Yeah, only time I think my mom ever did that was when my little cousin wanted to rent a Scooby-Doo movie. She was like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> She's like, go put that away, get something else. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have nothing against your mother. I've never even met her, but her... Just she's got it out for Scooby Doo, and I just don't get it. Like, <laughs> I, I think the way it was explained was that she was afraid he'd make us dumb because the way he talks, like she's uh, like, I don't, I don't want my kids to pick up on that. <laughs> that's valid. That's valid. My dad took away our our copy of Ace Ventura because my brother and I were quoting that and talking out of our ass in the in the, in the store. So he's just like, okay, I yeah, that's take, a problem. <laughs> take this away. Yeah, good job getting out in front of that, Dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he didn't get yeah, out in I, front I, of it because we kept doing it for the rest of our lives. <laughs> of course you did. Um, but um, it's funny. I, I, there was a commercial back in the day, that, the same advertisement that Kyle's talking about for cats that I remember seeing on TV all the time. And I had a similar reaction. I never asked to rent it. I never asked to see it. But I'm not going to lie. When the fucking Mr. Mistopheles or whatever shoots lightning bolts out of his hand, you know, little seven, eight-year-old Trevor is is most certainly like my interest is peaked. There's a cat man shooting lightning. <laughs> well, the, one of the cats does. He sounds kind of like David Bowie at one point, oh, and okay. that was the one that got me. Oh, see, I didn't give a shit about that. I was just, I just want to see the lightning bolts. <laughs> well, you didn't see Labyrinth, so you wouldn't fucking know. Yeah, I, I didn't know about Bowie when I was like seven or eight years old. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> different times. Um, yeah, different times. But we'll we'll get there eventually because I mean both you and I think Brad have been ragging on me for not having seen Labyrinth, which is you know Jim Henson connection. So we're we, I got Muppets on the mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got Muppets on my mind. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that's about all the setup I guess I can give uh, for a little shop of horrors. It's probably more than was warranted, but I I like this movie quite a lot. So I had I actually had quite a lot of fun. Like watching the behind the scenes material and and learning a little something about how how we got this this movie at the end of the day. But uh, does it fall to me to give a plot summary, Kyle? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so being as it is uh, Kyle's killer October, I will give the plot summary for Little Shop of Horrors from 1986, directed by Frank Oz. Uh, this is uh, a movie about some unfortunate people that work at a flower shop and then there is an unexpected total eclipse of the sun mm -hmm. which causes which uh, serves as a smoke screen for the arrival of an extraterrestrial plant being uh, that feeds on blood and it, it uh, coerces or it sweet talks Seymour uh, Krellborn, one of our, our, our downtrod downtrodden hero uh, into feeding it and causing it to grow uh, in the hopes that it'll bring him good luck and fortune uh, and merry mishaps ensue. Uh, more mishaps if you've seen the director's cut. 
uh, slightly less mishaps if you only seen the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've only seen the theatrical cut. Yeah, and I'll have to get you up to speed on the events of the director's cut because it only became available, I think, in 2012 onward. Uh, it was rumored for a long time. Like, it was known that they had shot additional material, but uh, these the screen tests, like the audience reactions to the director's cut were extraordinarily poor, uh, such that the, the studio and uh, David Geffen were like, dude, Frank, Frankie, you, you got to go back and you got to change that ending. Like, that is not cool. <laughs> like, totally not cool, bud. Um, but yeah, it's probably a good idea for us to, to go through the movie um, based on its uh, musical beats. Um, but the, I think it's I think it's really fun that we're uh, tackling this movie after the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, because in a lot of ways, I feel like this movie could not have existed without without the style and the sensibilities brought on by rocky horror because like rocky horror has that kind of like throwback vibe to it it has like a nostalgia for like the 1950s kind of rockabilly tune to it um and just like b movies permeate every every pore of that movie and Mm -hmm. this one is straight up just like an adaptation of a b movie so they're they're cut from the same cloth um, only difference is this one had quite a bit more money to work with um, and is less ambitious, I think, from a thematic standpoint. Um, but I think from a musical standpoint, I, I would argue I enjoy I enjoy the music in this one quite a bit more, honestly. I disagree. Okay. Yeah. You're entitled to do that. You're entitled uh, to your opinion, sir, but you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to cut Kyle's feed now, and uh, we'll proceed with just me now. Welcome <laughs> to Trevor's Killer October. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, but I think it's really neat that our, uh, our, our opening sequence is like what appears to be like a, a nebula in space. And we get like straight up like a, a 1950s 50s. B movie, yeah. like a Criswell opening, like Criswell from from like Ed Wood, if you've ever seen the Tim Burton movie, like like future events such as these will affect you and I. I was, in the future. <laughs> I was doing my uh, poetry snaps in my head when I saw the opening. I'm like, good job, good job. It's fantastic. In fact, I'm just going to straight up read it because I, th- I think it's phenomenal. It's like, on the 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of a decade not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. It's like this bizarre cryptic opening, but it's like so fitting for for just this this particular aesthetic and tone. Um, and then, yeah, we straight up get the opening number of the movie, which is uh, straight up Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, this is where the, the money immediately is put on the screen, like from frame one, basically. Uh, so we have our opening number that's delivered by our, our uh, essentially like our Greek. Greek chorus. Yeah, our Greek chorus. Yeah, um, and they're all wonderful. <laughs> there's an excellent moment uh, with our Greek chorus. I'm not sure if it's this scene. It might be their next big number that they have um, where it starts raining. Is it, is it raining in the beginning? or is it? The, I is think it starts raining about halfway through the sequence, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was paying attention because our Greek chorus are singing and it's raining, but they're not getting wet. And apparently yes. it, it was, a, it, I'm like, I was paying attention. I'm like, they're there. I'm like, I can see them there, but they're not getting rained on. And apparently it was a trick that has not been disclosed. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine there's quite a bit of that involved in this production because it's it's kind of fascinating how it's a it's a $25 million horror musical based on a B movie. You would not expect this to involve like A-grade technical work, but in terms of like special effects engineering and whatnot, they, they really fucking brought it for this yeah. movie. Even the it's song. Amazing. The song got stuck in my head for the rest of the night. It's very catchy. Oh yeah, it it'll do that to you. I did not get a a wink of sleep last night because of that. <laughs> little shop, little shop of yeah. Bop, it, she bop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very catchy. Um I was going to say the other two I don't know, but I do know the one that's in the middle for the most part, Tisha Campbell. Um she was Gina on uh, Martin. I don't know if you remember oh, that show. Oh, okay. I, Wait, I I know it by reputation. So we were a we were a Damon Wayne's household also, and she plays um, Damon Wayne's wife in uh, My Wife and Kids, which is a very funny sitcom. Um, we were also my mom. My mom was we were really big into In Living Color, and Martin was another one that we used to watch. But yeah, Tisha Campbell uh, recognized her. The other one of the other ones I think Tashina Arnold. She was also in Martin, but Tisha Campbell's was the most no uh, the most famous out of the three of these ladies. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out because you did mention that when you're running down the cast, and I was like. I, I appreciate all of them, but I don't recognize any of them. You may remember her as Craig Robinson's wife at the at the end of Zack and Mary Make a Porno, the one who was just vicious. <laughs> she, <laughs> <laughs> that woman is the bane of my existence. Yeah, she's she's pretty funny in there too because she is brutal at the end of that movie. But yeah, but this uh, is but go ahead. I was just gonna say like what I was alluding to when I said you can see the money from frame one. The set. is the set the set the set the set the like set. they built a fucking like city block basically it's pretty and incredible it, it's the detail is like holy shit aside from the backdrop of like the bridge in the in the way background it it looks true to life like it's incredible i i think even it i think it might even be better than muppets a muppet christmas carol because a muppet christmas carol had pretty cool sets for a muppet movie it was pretty it was pretty incredible though but yeah this i think beats it out yeah it's it's pretty incredible and what's more i I was telling kyle this before we started recording i think the highest praise i can sing for this movie is that to me it feels like a case of a a stage musical adapted to film and benefiting massively from the transition because because of things like making use of every angle of this set because they put the camera in fascinating places they move the camera in fascinating ways they they don't just take it for granted that they're shooting on a sound stage they really take advantage of the pack the fact that when you're doing a stage show i i mean i've personally worked on stage shows that have rotating tables in the center of the stage and stuff which allow you to give different looks and different angles to the action and whatnot but for the most part it's just all the action has to happen at a static angle whereas in film you can move the camera you can place it anywhere you like you can maneuver the camera to punctuate energy and moments um and they do that repeatedly in this movie they it's a it's a fucking movie but it it's it's dna like it, it is that of a musical and i feel like this version of it like i could not see myself going to a a stage version of this and feeling that that was like objectively better than this movie like that that's just my opinion i mean not not to shit on live performances and whatnot i'm sure they'd give great performances it's just like they make they make use of all the tools they have at their disposal it's it's really impressive from scene to scene in this movie but 
um, our chorus moves through the city. Uh, we get to see the the neighborhood where basically eighty percent of the story takes place. Um, and uh, yeah, we get our opening number, uh, "Little Shop of Horrors." It's absolutely wonderful. It does get it is an earworm. It gets deeply oh, embedded stuck. in your it, skull. It's in there. It's gonna be a minute. You'll 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 watch it out like eventually, but it'll it'll take a minute. But um, <laughs> but then uh, they also head into the Mushnik plant store, uh, which, which serves as the principal location of our story. It reminded me of Naked Lunch a little bit. The inside, I don't know. There was something like dark. Uh, it was something like Cronenberg. Dark had a darkness about it. There's a certain like musty like texture. Uh, to the movie because like the mildewy i guess yeah. is, is a good description I, I see what you mean like the apart peter weller's apartment in that movie kind of has a similar vibe to the mushnik plant store at least in the early goings when it's supposed to be run down and whatnot but i uh, the the talent working on this film like come from shocking and astounding places honestly in terms of like their previous dealings like uh lyle and richard conway uh, lyle did the puppetry Richard did the miniatures, which are largely not featured in the theatrical cut of the movie. Um, as far as I know, Lyle Conway came from the Jim Henson Company, uh, so puppet masters. <laughs> um, whereas Richard, uh, I think one of his more famous credits was he did the miniature work for uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Ooh. Uh, so he's got a pedigree. Like He, he really does have a, a strong resume for this sort of work. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some of the production designers... Uh, came from familiar places i actually didn't look into who did the set construction mm-hmm. um but we are introduced to mr mushnick uh, reading a newspaper that has a headline about a total eclipse of the sun put a mm-hmm. pin in that uh, and then in the basement we get introduced to rick moranis as seymour crowborn our dipshit uh, hang- <laughs> our resident dipshit yes mr crowborn uh, and he is like hanging a plant on a shelf in his uh, basement a cot basically he doesn't really have an apartment it's just a basement with a cot in it honestly yeah um and uh yeah he he is immediately uh seen performing acts of boobery and tomfoolery uh he basically just drops the shelf off the wall and mr mushnick cusses him out from upstairs (laughs) um but yeah very shortly thereafter we're introduced to our all of our principal players uh so we got rick moranis uh, we have Ellen Green, who I think is the only holdover from the stage adaptation. I had a feeling. Yeah, she's the only one with legit pipes. Uh, everybody can sing in this movie, but she's like the one that like has like trained vocals. Um, and then Vincent Gardenia as a Mister Mushnick, who also is. He was a stage. Of... He was a stage actor, from what I understand. Oh, he has that style to him. Uh, he's He also has an extensive resume. Um, I think the character in the stage version had musical numbers, though shockingly in this movie he he doesn't. He never is asked to sing. But he has a, he has a particular delivery. Like, he has a certain energy to him that's very big. Like, you can tell that playing to the back rows is not something that's foreign to him. Mm-hmm. And I actually kind of like it. It's, it's, it's very campy, it's very hammy, but it works perfectly for this kind of movie. Um, but very shortly thereafter, so basically we're, we're introduced to everybody. Uh, Audrey, Alan Green is playing Audrey. Uh, she has a black eye, which is explained to us that came from her boyfriend, who is kept fairly mysterious for a good chunk of the movie. Um, but the point is they have an abusive relationship, and she is repeatedly told by everyone around her, like, why are you still with them? Um, and it's never fully explained as to why all the, 
Although she does make it known that's like I'm scared to leave because he'll, he'll get angry. She's trapped in a cycle of abuse. Like that's that's it's funny, guys, because she's you know getting beaten by her boyfriend and she can't leave him. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, from a thematic standpoint, like I said, I feel like Rocky Horror had more to say than this. But this this movie is not devoid of messaging. Case in point, our next musical number, Skid Row. Yeah, um, um, which is. Yeah, El- go ahead. Go Ellen ahead. Green reminds me of Dee Dee Kahn. Uh, she was Frenchie from Greece. She was also uh, Stacy Jones from Shining Time Station. If you remember that, the Thomas the Tank Engine. I never watched that show, ah. honestly. Like I, I know of it, obviously, but I, yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine. Like, funny enough, like my my brother always liked trains as a little kid, but we never. I don't think we ever really got into Thomas. Ugh, really? He was one of those. Those kids that were into trains? I fucking hated those kids. <laughs> I mean, they're I a certain underst- breed. I never understood it. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to I went to grade school with a kid who was really into the Civil War. And it's okay, like, yeah, that's yeah, not okay. That That's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's better than a kid who's into World War II, because what kind of dad do you have? Um, the... Uh, <laughs> But we had a kid. an absentee father. That's yeah. what. <laughs> I grew up with a kid who was into tractors. I'm like, even as a child, he's like, "Look at that tractor." I'm like, "What the fuck is wrong with you, dude?" Oh yeah, no, I, I would, I would have the same reaction to that. That's that's just not cool, man. Like that's not that's not gonna help you out later in life. <laughs> like, no. Like, <laughs> no. Like, hang on, you're you're getting excited right now. Like, you're a giddy as a schoolboy over a fucking tractor you're into tractors dude have you even seen predator 2 yet jeez <laughs> he hadn't uh Shit will change your life yeah dude uh, <laughs> yeah we get a skid row um which wasn't my favorite um i get what it's doing i understand where it's coming from but i'm like i'm here for audrey too that's i'm looking i'm looking forward to that part of the movie so this this wasn't my favorite musical number yeah i could see that it's also you know a downer beat for sure like the yeah. whole subject matter is just about like the the trap that is poverty and and the inescapable reality that is socioeconomics um and the downtrodden um it it has a depressing vibe to it as as kyle had pointed out the the set the set design and the lighting here really do kind of like give it a grungy feel to it it straight up does look like a shithole neighborhood well i guess if uh, you do all the more incredible considering how artificial it actually is i mean yeah if you think about this story is like these people are living in poverty and uh seymour has to res- has to resort to uh very unconventional means to make a living uh, yeah it makes sense that this would be talking on uh, speaking to that yeah it, it's like i said the the messaging in this the the themes at work are less emphatic than they were in rocky horror like rocky cool. horror really, yeah. <laughs> come on yeah <laughs> come on <laughs> they're 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 more subtle but i i do think it is important to acknowledge that this this whole reason for this musical number being inserted into the narrative especially so early is just to spell out to us the audience how desperate these characters are mm-hmm. that the reason why seymour makes a lot of the harebrained decisions he makes later on is because i mean one he has poor judgment and two yeah. he he doesn't really know of a better way to to get to where he'd like to be um but what's interesting about this musical number is that it's like it's early in the movie it's only our second musical beat in the whole thing um and it's probably like the most traditional musical mm-hmm. number in the whole movie like yeah. it has a, a traditional like basically like broadway kind of vibe to it like complete with all the actors 
bowing their heads at the end of the number to signal that we're done. Um, it's kind of fascinating because it's, I feel like it's a good way to ease the audience into the picture. Cause it's like, we're going to give you some traditional stuff and then we're going to get to some puppet stuff and it's yeah. going to be weird, but you're going to like it. <laughs> yeah. So it's like easing into the waters of a, a very unusual musical. Rocky Horror did the exact opposite. Like we jump into non-traditional and then we kind of end with like a traditional play, like, like stage play. Yeah, I mean, we begin with a nonsense musical number where it's like, I don't even really know what we're talking about, and those those are very red lips. Uh, is that a man or a woman singing? And then, <laughs> and, and then, damn it, Janet! Like, yeah. damn, damn it, Janet! Right off the bat, it's like, oh, we're 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 dropping we're the doing D word it now, yeah, in front of a church, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then uh, we we cut to the Mushnik uh, flower shop, and uh, we have a. A brief little montage like it's not even a montage it's just a, f- a couple of jump cuts signifying the passage of time yeah and it's basically the three of them just standing in different positions in the office doing nothing for eight hours i don't think he's paying them i think isn't rick moranis living in the store he is and that's actually kind of interesting because like it, it creates a a strange dynamic between he and mr mushnick because, like, Mr. Mushnick, it's really easy to point the finger at him and call him a, you know, complete asshole. Because he kind of is. But he also is, like, housing I was going to say. And, all, and Seymour was also an orphan. So he's actually doing him a really big favor. He's not nice to him, but he's putting a roof over his head and giving him a job. I was going to say, he's definitely giving him a job. Uh, probably doesn't pay well, if anything. And he's giving her a job, and she lives right across the street. Yeah, so, like... Like I said, I feel like Mr. Mushnick, he could be very easily misinterpreted as just a complete scoundrel. But it's like, no, he's he's just greedy. But at the end of the day, he, he kind of saved Seymour's ass. In fact, they've mentioned it a couple times in the movie. Do we get um, introduced to Audrey too here? We do. So we get to the end of the workday, and Mr. Mushnick is at the end of his rope. He's basically like, you, you kids don't bother coming in anymore. Like, like tomorrow, just don't come into work. Like, if we can't make any more sales, I'm, I'm just going to shutter the store, and that's going to be it. Uh, and then Audrey has the idea, and, like, the phrasing here is really funny, where she's like, <laughs> she basically says, like, um, Seymour, why don't you get that strange and unusual plant that you yeah. found the other day? <laughs> it's like very deliberately phrased in, in a very like artificial manner. But it would have been funny if she broke the fourth wall, if she just like looked at the camera real quick. It would have been perfectly at home in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it would have worked just fine. It would have been cut from like the Mel Brooks cloth of comedy. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it it feels very stagey here, and even the camera angle uh, during this this portion of the movie, it feels like a stage play. It, like it it's all like one flat angle. Um, and yeah, Seymour runs into the basement, and he introduces us and Mr. Mushnick to Audrey Two, uh, which is like a venus flytrap looking plant that's a big enough to fit in a coffee can at this point in the movie um and (laughs) i love when he puts it in the window uh Mm -hmm. so kyle when he puts it in the window the idea here is like he he's reasoning to mr mushnick it's like well if we have this strange and unusual plant it's like maybe we can use it to like advertise the store if we put it in display in the window people will come in because they'll want to see the plant and like the second he sets the plant down this dude walks in yeah christopher guest walks in he's like that's an interesting plant he's like i don't want to buy it it's just really interesting and that's like the whole exchange and he just he's like okay 
uh, I want to buy a bunch of flowers. And ends up, I was like, I'll buy $50 worth. He's like, oh, awesome. He's going to buy flowers. He's like, can you have change for 100 Like, no. He's like, fine. I'll take twice as much, which never would never happen, obviously. Um, but it's funny. Like, this is what gets business going is just this plant in the front window, which is just ridiculous. It, it's utterly ridiculous, but, you know, the movie crafts its own reality. And it, it, it's cute. Like, just the timing of, like, the second he sets it down, this guy k- kicks the door open and is like, Hello, I couldn't help but notice that very interesting plant. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that this uh, business would have been shut down a long time ago. Because um, my partner's family actually were wholesale florists. They were actually the ones growing flowers and selling them to these kinds of shops. That shit is expensive. Uh, and you can't, you can't be like buying a bunch of flowers and then not selling them. Like you will go out of business very quickly. Oh yeah. No, I would imagine that's the case. And it's, it's probably like the margins are probably like razor thin, mm-hmm. honestly. But, um, yeah. Uh, so we get our big sale to uh, Christopher guest. Um, and this is where we get the, uh, the story of the discovery of the Audrey two plant. Uh, and this is where, uh, the number kicks in here it's called dadu um it's barely a musical number it's like borderline spoken word <laughs> pretty much yeah i um, didn't count it's, it. it yeah it's barely a song but it involves the chorus and and i like the way they insert themselves in into the proceedings where it's just like they they kind of like punctuate every key point in every every line of dialogue that seymour speaks here so basically seymour tells tells the tale of heading into the wholesale flowers district uh, in search of strange and unusual plants. Uh, and then he goes to see a Chinese man with a, uh, a collection of strange and unusual plants. There's nothing good on display that day, but then there is a total eclipse of the sun. And then he decides to go take another look. And out of nowhere, there seems to be a brand new plant that wasn't there previously. And uh, Chinese guy doesn't even seem to know what the plant is, but he sells it to him for a buck ninety-five. <laughs> yep. Uh, and basically, that's how he found the plant. Um, and yeah, we get a montage of uh, people coming into the store to see the Audrey Two plant, which, in case you didn't notice, is is named after Audrey uh, because Seymour has the hots for her. Um, although his uh, appreciation and love for her is unrequited at this point, because she is preoccupied with her abusive relationship mm-hmm. uh, so, so they're just friends at this point um but then we get to the end of the day and mr mushnick is super excited he he wants to buy everybody dinner uh, and then the plant starts to sag like it's not looking good and uh mr mushnick is like well shit <laughs> um so audrey declares that she has a she has a date that night so she can't go to dinner anyway and then we get a fun beat where seymour asks like well can we go together <laughs> and mr mush looks like no <laughs> of course not um but seymour has a homework assignment after hours uh in the form of having to nurse the plant back to health uh because mr mushnick is keenly aware of the fact that wow that the plant really bailed us out uh, and then we get another musical number in the form of uh rick moranis's solo uh grow for me uh, which is him in the basement uh, singing to the Audrey Two plant, and uh, what did you think of this one, Kyle? No surprise. Like Mick, Mick, blah, blah, blah. Mick, Rick Moranis is actually pretty good at singing. Um, I wasn't expecting that, uh, but yeah, it's fine. Just it was like another one of these connector songs. It just wasn't super long. Yeah, I, actually, I think connector song is a good description 
because it's not terribly long. It's it's just him uh, doing the musical thing of taking what could easily be one or two lines of exposition in a, in a movie and turning it into a two-minute musical number, just expressing his thought process and his ambitions. Uh, in this case, he's listing off all of the things that he's done to try to make this plant happy and, and healthy and, and grow, and none of it seems to be working. Uh, and then he gets frustrated, and he's like, what do you want from me, blood? And he ends up pricking his finger on one of the rose thorns in the basement. Uh, and then he notices that the plant, uh, much like himself, uh, he's like sucking on his finger it it starts making a suckling noise uh, at the sight of blood coming out of his fingertip um and this is where finally finally we get uh what i was most excited for kyle to see not so much the musical stuff but just the the puppetry because uh, I, I feel like for kyle in particular this is probably the the biggest selling point this is where we finally start to get that element of the movie and uh what'd you think of the little audrey too <laughs> Little Audrey 2 is fine. I mean, it is good, but once Audrey 2 is full grown, like you just kind of forget about the little puppet. But it isn't it is a cool little puppet. Yeah, it is a cool little puppet. Like it's incredibly well articulated and uh the timing of its movements are really impressive. And I the attention to detail is really what I appreciate cuz not only is it the the main head and neck of the plant, it's also like the leaves that it uses kind of as arms. Um and just the the articulation, like the detail and it, its ability to emote and stuff, like it it's literally like pursing its lips together and doing like a sucking noise, and the intricacy of of the puppet mechanism is such that it can actually convey that. Um, and then yeah, he uh, he feeds it a few drops of blood, and I kind of marches upstairs in a huff, like hoping like he he's keenly aware of how kind of gross and weird that is to have this plant suddenly springing to life and wanting his blood um but he acquiesces and he ends up feeding it a few drops um and then after after he's left the room uh, we get a brief sequence where audrey 2 grows and it like busts out of its uh coffee can uh pot um and then immediately we uh we jump to the radio station and we see that uh rick moranis has brought audrey 2 now in a new pot uh and twice as big as it was previously uh, to the radio station uh, to advertise both the store and the plant. And um, we have a, a waiting room very similar to like Beetlejuice, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which actually would come out like what, a couple of years after this or a year after this. Yeah. Just like um, two years later, I think. Yeah. It reminded me of uh, the waiting room uh, in the afterlife in Beetlejuice. But yeah, we basically have a, a bunch of strange people with strange gadgets. Like there's a man in like an antiquated flying suit and like a woman with a, a caged box, and a someone with a, some some creepy looking, uh, ventriloquist dummy or something, and we get a bit where uh, the Audrey two uh, plant tries to take a bite out of a lady's butt. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I'm at both me and the girlfriend had a good chuckle at that. <laughs> yeah, not I, gonna lie. I was gonna say, uh, I, could you make a gif of this? Cause it's pretty funny. This is this is gif worthy. Oh, you you want a gif of the the plant? Yeah, trying sure. to trying to bite the butt. I thought that was a pretty funny one. Yeah, sure, uh, I could do that. <laughs> uh, yes, then we get introduced to our uh, radio host, who is John Candy. Uh, does he have a soul patch here? Did I did I catch that? He he absolutely does. Oof, yeah. Um, yeah, we see him doing uh, his little spiel on the radio, which is always funny to see. Um, I'm not a 
Jimmy Fallon fan, uh, but there's a pretty funny uh, SNL bit where he's with Ben Affleck and they're doing the doing the radio station vo- uh, voice kind of thing, and it, it's pretty funny. But uh, I I like these two. I like these kinds of like little radio bits where you see what's actually happening in the radio booth. Yeah, I I I had a. I had a reaction to seeing John Candy because it's been a, it's been a minute since I've seen a John Candy movie, and back in the day, John Candy was was a big deal, man. Like mm-hmm. like up until his death, like he he had a really good run as a as the comedic fat man of his day, and uh, he is sorely missed, at least by me. Like I just kind of light up a little bit every time I see him in movies and stuff, just because he he has that energy to him. He, he seemed like he'd be like like larger than life in real in real life like he seemed like he would just be a great energy to be around well i mean i was just watching like a a video review of uh home alone mm. and they had just that clip of him like, doing the at polka the twist airport. no he's not even doing anything he's just he's just at the airport and he offers to give kevin's mom a ride mm-hmm. and just the way he does it it's just like man john candy just seems like such a nice man just he just Big teddy bear, <laughs> yeah. um, and you know Uncle Buck got a lot of play in our household when I was a little kid and stuff. Um, John Candy's a cool guy; I miss him. But I, he has like two minutes of screen time in this movie. It's kind of weird that he's mm-hmm. on the cover of the Blu-ray I own, being really? as he's in two minutes of it. But he's John fucking Candy, so I guess that makes sense as a selling point. But he really does, I feel, make use of his two minutes. Like he, he's playing a character named Wil- Wil- Wink Wilkins, I think. And his his uh, radio program is like the weird world of Wink Wilkins. <laughs> I think he would have made a good if he would have been the shop owner. I think that he would have had a good rapport with Mick, Rick Moranis in that role. And I think that that scene where the shop shop owner like confronts him, I think John Candy could have been kind of menacing in that in that scene. He's a big guy. Yeah, he's a big dude. He, he's a big dude. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. Oh. Although it's like. <laughs> <laughs> what? Could, could you imagine him as the uncle in Withnal and I? <laughs> oh yes, I could. Yes, I could. I, I I would not have done that. I bet he could do it. But what we got, I think, is untoppable in a lot of ways. Like that that guy, he knew what he was doing, and he did it exceedingly well. Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, he's a big guy. He's a big like, guy. Like like he took some scenes that like were comedic and actually made them slightly scary and intimidating. Yes. <laughs> I know you're Just, not to sleep, boy. Yeah. Good movie if you haven't seen it, folks. Check yeah, it out. Check it out. Strange name to American ears anyway, but with Nolan and I, look it up. Yes. Um, but yeah, well, we just get this brief moment in the in the radio booth where uh, John Candy is just using all the props to make all the noises uh, at his at his desk, and he, <laughs> just just his eyes bugging out, and him like pushing the the mic back and forth in front of his face and saying "weird." Or actually, I should try that. Like actually moving my head. So, weird. It sounds the same. <laughs> oh. Sorry. Goddamn modern technology. <laughs> it's too good. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah basically uh seymour goes on the radio station with john candy um to i mean these guys as far as i understand were very good friends uh off camera so it only makes sense that he'd bring them along but uh basically he promotes uh the flower shop on the air uh, and we see uh mr mushnick and audrey at the store 
uh, listening into the broadcast, and Mr. Mushnick is just like, say the address, goddammit. Yeah. <laughs> he like, doesn't well, quite get it all out. Like, well, it's yeah. still good exposure either way, yeah. The, it's funny, there's a certain way he pronounces the word advertising, that I it's it's a very particular way of saying the word that I I feel like maybe maybe it's a regional or a cultural thing. Was, he says like advertising, like mm. he puts the he puts a weird emphasis on a weird syllable. I didn't <laughs> advertising. <catch> it. <laughs> it's, anyway, it, it was just a small thing that I was like that's that's a weird way to say that word. Um. Anyway, uh, Audrey uh, makes it known that she's got a date later. Uh, and Mr. Mushnick once again admonishes her about like, hey, you probably shouldn't fool around with a guy who's breaking your fucking arms. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then even the chorus, who uh, kind of, they're like uh, uh, non-diegetic most of the time, um, but every once in a while we see them in like street clothes. Uh, so normally they're like dolled up, like like a like a actual chorus line or something, but. Um, from time to time, we see them in street clothes as actual characters that our our principal characters interact with, and they're like, "Girl, you you got to figure that shit out." <laughs> Girl, you got to figure that out. They're kind of <laughs> it's kind of aggressive the way they confront her about it too. Like she's like a kind of a a frail like frail lady, and then just like, "Hey, why are you let that dude beat you up?" I'm like, "Jesus!" Like. And there's three of them. Yeah, there's three of them. <laughs> it's the middle of the night. It's a little scary. Calm down. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Audrey goes back to her apartment, again, as Kyle had pointed out, across the street yeah. uh, in Skid Row. Uh, and she has her solo musical number here. This uh, is this awful. This would be Somewhere That's Green. And as Kyle said, uh, he has already expressed his opinion. Awful. Uh, he, f- he felt this was awful. so we won't linger on it but it is it's almost like a this is like a a, a, an aside within the movie this is what what i'm kind of talking about when it's like you're taking advantage of the film medium because we we transport to a different dimension alternative dimension where i'm sure in the stage version they had like an alternative set that maybe they rotated the stage or something to show the other side uh but basically she has a fantasy of living in like like an episode of uh, Leave It to Beaver, essentially. She mentions what was the the actress who played uh, Jimmy Stewart's wife in It's a Wonderful Life. Ooh, I've never even seen that movie, but she really? says I look I look like Donna Reed. Is Donna Reed? There we go. Yeah, we might have to watch. We we might be doing uh, black and white Christmas movies this December because that's a Christmas Carol you haven't seen with Alistair Sim, I think. Yeah, I don't think I've. I don't think I've seen a adaptation of that aside from scrooged really that's i think we might be doing black and white christmas <laughs> yeah there wasn't a whole lot of wholesome in my household growing up like i don't know where i don't know where that came from but yeah just like wholesome family entertainment was just not a thing we did a whole lot of <laughs> uh if you get the opportunity you should look up uh jimmy stewart outtakes from that era oh man he seemed like a swell guy he's he was he seemed like he was pretty great <laughs> Uh, only problem with that is Horatio Sands is probably involved in like half of them and it's like man I can't even fucking look at that guy Jimmy <laughs> piece of shit I said Jimmy Stewart right not Jimmy Fallon I thought you said Fallon <laughs> Jimmy Stewart J- Jimmy okay. Stewart not Jimmy Fallon fuck that okay. J- Jimmy Stewart <laughs> 
Uh, maybe I misheard you, but I heard what I wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not an advocate for Jimmy Fallon, so no. Yeah, I don't think anybody that's been on this podcast is. <laughs> if you are, yeah, you need to stop I, listening. Uh. But yeah, I will look that up because uh, Jimmy Stewart is a. He seemed like a very interesting guy, honestly. Like, like really immense figure in in the film industry, like over multiple decades. Him messing up is exactly what you picture it to be. Oh gosh, darn it! Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, darn it! Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> what oh jeez. Oh jeez. Oh, 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 I didn't. Oh, Donna, I'm sorry. Oh gosh, Donna, I'm sorry. Well, it, let's it, cue it up again. It's, ex- <laughs> it's exactly that. It's pretty fun. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, she has her big fantasy of living uh, in a tract house out in the country with Seymour, with kids who look just like them, and eating TV dinners, and having Tupperware parties, and watching television on their big, giant, twelve-inch screen because it's a period piece. <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't stand close to those things, man. I feel like the radiation. <laughs> I'm afraid of the radiation. Um, like, but honey. I think I'm sterile. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's. Uh, I think this is the song where, like, so we haven't mentioned that. Um, uh, da, 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 Audrey's voice is like crazy annoying. It's like super high pitched, and she's doing a weird little little voice the whole time throughout the movie. But the voice also carries into her singing, so it'll kind of go in and out while she'll be singing with the accent. But then it'll like drop off, and then she'll just like hit the notes, and it's like, oh wow, that's actually really incredible. But the voice like keeps it restrained. Yeah, uh, I thought that was really fascinating, actually, because Kyle and I were talking about this before we started recording. I, I watched this movie last night uh, with my girlfriend, who is a singer, who actually has musical training and like has legit pipes. Like I, I heard it, man. It's nice, power, powerful shit. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna lie, it's kind of loud. But um, anyway, um, she she can't help but watch musicals and stuff, and like kind of pay special attention to the technical side of things. And while she confirmed that Ellen Green has some serious fucking pipes, like she could sing her ass off and blows everyone in this movie out of the water, uh, she too uh, had similar dispute with with her tone. She was like, "It's really obnoxious." Mm-hmm. Like like I was kind of shocked that my girlfriend of all people who would would be like, I really don't like listening to that. <laughs> like, you should, you es- should. Especially coming from the most talented person in the cast, you know? Yeah. Uh, you should bring her over to sing in your apartment when your piece of shit neighbors are making a bunch of noise. That is an idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, today today could be... No, she, shit, she's got like a concert tonight or something. But <laughs> she's t- got shit to but, do. But I'm already hearing like rumblings as we're recording. Like yeah. folks at home, I, hopefully you can't hear that, but I've heard some shit. Some some objects have been dropped. Like just an entire household of butterfingers up there. I don't know what the fuck their story is. Yeah, all bunch of Dennis Nedrys. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, the proper response to those. <laughs> Newman. Um, yeah, so she's singing about God knows what, uh, and then I have underneath there stuff, and then Steve Martin. So what's the stuff that happens before Steve Martin? Okay, let me clear up the stuff. Uh, so we do get an intervening uh, musical number. It's a very brief one. It's just a uh, connecting tissue, basically. Like Kyle said, there are songs in here that expressly serve the purpose of connecting scenes. Uh, so this one is called uh, Some Fun Now, and it, it's kind of like a 
almost has like a calypso vibe to it like if you didn't if you needed evidence that these were the same people that worked on the little mermaid this would be one of the tracks i would point to it's like you remember under the sea well listen to this <laughs> anyway uh basically it's just a, a brief sequence where uh we see that she's like uh ellen green audrey is having her fantasy about living with seymour out in the country in a in a nice house uh somewhere that's green uh, that would be the name of the song and the lyrics um and we see what seymour is up to while she's doing that and it's literally just him sitting in the basement feeding audrey to the plant his blood via his fingers and it's just sucking his blood from him <laughs> um while while the chorus sings uh some fun now um apparently the song is truncated from the uh the stage version uh with good reason i don't think it's a particularly good beat and it's it's just connective fiber is what it is um but then we cut back to the store and we see that uh mr mushnick is just inundated with business uh it's getting kind of crazy in there uh, but then we see seymour just like standing up against the wall just like staring off into space <laughs> and and his fingers are covered with uh, bandages because he's like he's like cut up in all of his fingers to feed audrey to the plant and I guess what they're trying to convey here is that he's low on blood, so he's like half focused. That's funny. Like, it's it's actually kind of funny because like the the activity in the room is like people zipping all over the place. You can just see this little frumpy Rick Moranis just staring off into space, like barely able to hold his head up. It's actually kind of funny looking. Did you get to Archer where they have to take his blood for a paternity test? I'm trying to remember. I think so. They take a liter of blood, <laughs> and he compensates by drinking a liter of melon balls. <laughs> I think I may have seen that. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Oh, they had a new season of that recently, didn't they? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't gotten gotten around to it. By the time that I get to watch something, it's just like I don't want to watch anything new. I'm just putting on something old. Yeah, that's that's fair, but I hope you get to it soon because I know you're all about that. It's a great show, so it's still good. It's still rocking it. Uh, there we hit a lull for a couple of seasons. The the jokes just aren't there. There's some funny stuff in there, but it's just not the same. But they picked it back up uh, in the last two seasons. Uh, last season was pretty good. I think I read that uh, his mom died. Yes. Uh, Jess, yeah. Jessica Walter. Yeah, she. That's passed. that's sad. And her husband, who all who's uh, Ron Cadillac. I don't know if you've gotten to Ron Cadillac in the series, but I haven't. Her husband did the voice of him, and he passed away a couple, like maybe a year ago. So yeah, they they both recently passed away. I mean, they they say that's often the case with elderly couples. Like yeah. one follows the other, but that's that's a bummer. It, like that's that's the fascinating thing about long long lived like animated shows and whatnot is that that's all it takes oftentimes it's just like one one person to not be able to do the job or one person to pass away and that's the whole thing just kind of it has a ripple effect that affects the whole production well she's like that character that she voices is fucking hilarious like she's She's incredible (laughs) she's a huge part of that show so yeah 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 she will be missed very much no like she's a foundational element of like the archer and mother dynamic it's Mm. like you can tell from minute one it's like this is this is like unlimited material for comedy yeah the rich white entitled generation x is she generation yeah around like around that time maybe boomer she she was actually a boomer Uh. yeah i I think she's supposed to be a boomer i mean the reality of that show is kind of like 
wonky. It's like, when yeah. does this take place? It's if, like, because it looks like the 60s occasionally when it's convenient. Oh. But then we're talking about Burt Reynolds movies all the time, and those don't come until like the 70s. You got more seasons to go. They, they It all comes up. <laughs> uh, well, I know Danger Zone becomes a meme later on. So yeah. <laughs> they go all over the place. Anyway, dentist. Oh, Fucking yeah. dentist. So we get to the dentist. And uh, this would be steve martin's big number his big musical number and uh he is playing a character who is a dentist named oren scrivello dds um and holy shit like as soon as as soon as he comes on the screen like i remember i was telling kyle this where it's like as soon as he came on the screen me as a little kid i was like half engaged in the plot at this point but as soon as his musical number hit just i perked up and i was just like whoa this movie's kind of fucking awesome. <laughs> well, I saw I saw him do his King Tut bit on SNL. It's very famous. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty easy to find. But I remember laughing my ass off at that as a kid. And then I got a little bit older and I watched more of like more of his movies and I'm like, "Oh, the extent of his comedy is just he he has like a funny he can do, do like a funny smile. Like that's his main thing." Is he just has a funny smile and sometimes a little funny singing voice. He just does like a like an off brand Elvis impersonation. I feel like his greatest his greatest gift, like his best instincts as a comedian come in the form of subtle gags that just zip past such that the such that like the script and the movie itself can't be bothered to to focus on it. It's just like it, it just blows past everyone in the room and that's like Oh, was that funny? Holy shit, that was funny, but nobody nobody noticed that it was funny. See, I think that's what Bill Murray's strengths are. If you paid yeah. like Scrooge, that's the main thing. It's like you go back and like I didn't even realize he was making a joke there. And maybe yeah. I just yeah. prefer Bill Murray's brand of that. Uh maybe I just doesn't hit with uh, Steve Martin for me. I I don't I can't quite explain it. I mean, maybe save it for a different podcast. But yeah. Bill Murray does have a similar technique, although I think his is more cutting. Like he most of the time he uses that energy to tear people down. Yeah. Steve Martin, it's just kind of like it's just little like zip, like just little gags here and there. But I, I generally like him. Uh, some of his more famous movies are ones I haven't even seen. Honestly, Dude, like, like Father of the like, Bride. Uh, yeah, see, I haven't even seen that. I had to shut off planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, John Candy couldn't even get me through that, just because Aww. Steve Martin. It was just such a bad balance between the two. It just he, see, I haven't seen that one either, but I probably should, being as I generally like the two of them. See, Richard, like uh, Steve Martin doesn't. He doesn't play a good dick. Richard Dreyfus plays a good dick, and that's why. Yes. That's because <laughs> he's probably a dick. Uh, that's why it works. I don't. I don't know if that's the case, but but yeah. He, Come on. He, he's got the short man. So yeah, he's say, got he's, Napoleon complex. He's a loud dude who's five foot five. Yeah, I think he's probably a dick. Uh, <laughs> I think him and uh, I think him and Jaws is probably him in real life. Honestly, annoying. Yeah, like, probably. Oftentimes uh, thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. Very seldom actually is, but is always sour about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, like his his uh chemistry with bill murray and what about bob that that was that was good one guy's a fucking goof an oaf and the other one's a, you know a dick it just didn't work for me in planes trains and automobiles but yeah uh, apparently steve martin and rick moranis have worked together multiple times just in film uh one of which is a it's not what i'd call an especially good comedy but it's one i remember again seeing from a young age and i kind of have a soft spot for it. it it scratches that like early 90s nostalgia vibe for me is a uh, my blue heaven mm. um it's the two of them working together with uh 
Joan Cusack, who Ooh, I greatly miss. That's my favorite Cusack. I, I really miss that gal. Yeah, she, she's great. She has a really good role on uh, Shameless. She, she's in there for quite a bit. Uh, does some comedy, but also does like some emotional, like serious stuff. Um, I do want to just disclose real quick. Steve Martin uh, has an episode on 30 Rock, and it's one of my favorite episodes, and he is hilarious in it. I will give him that. Okay. I, that's high praise. <laughs> that's high praise. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this uh, musical number begins with uh, a rear projection shot of Steve Martin riding his... Uh, his motorcycle, his Harley, directly into the camera, and uh, the the images being projected <laughs> behind him represent the only miniature work that are preserved in the theatrical cut of this movie. I'm thinking of the gag of him getting off the motorcycle each time. Oh, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's be- Thank you for noticing that, yeah. Kyle, because that that always tickles me, um, um, and it happens multiple times in the movie. <laughs> um, I, this this whole musical number works perfectly uh, because I. Generally, they all know what this says about me. But when we're talking about we're making excruciating pain, the like the 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 joke basically, and this is really great. This is really well done because the first one he's doing, he's got a kid, a child screaming in agony. <laughs> it's just so funny. Oh, it's it's fantastic. See, this is this is where things like camera choreography and timing yes. of edits. This is where you really are taking advantage of the, of the tools you have at your disposal, and they they really do make a make a spectacular production of this because we get him riding through the city in his leathers and everything and then the gag that kyle was mentioning about the motorcycle his dismount procedure is by the way he has like a an elvis style pompadour yeah and, uh, his his singing voice his character is basically supposed to be elvis yeah. essentially um but the way he does this is he he hops off his motorcycle and then it rolls a few feet beyond him mm-hmm. and then he like poses and just like gyrates his hips a little bit and it goes ah! <laughs> like he, he can stop it on command his, yeah. his his masculine energy is such that he has a spiritual connection to his bike yeah. <laughs> um, but just through the power of pelvic thrusting he can cause it to stop <laughs> it's, it's fantastic and the timing of it of him introducing his his story was that uh, I mean, I know the lyrics. I'm not going to sing them. I, I'm not. I'm not that. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to sing the song <laughs> into the mic. But actually, this is like the song that I do know by heart, basically. Um, but basically, he's telling his life story about how when, when he was a little kid, his mom noticed uh, he's kind of a kind of a sadist. Uh, he's got he 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 hurts animals. Yeah. Um. So his mom has the brilliant idea where she's like, hmm, we got to find a. A way for you to get paid we need to find an honest profession for you my sadistic child and he's he's expositing all this via song um as he's coming into work and by the way the the, the backgrounds here the sets make it clear that he's doing just fine like from a financial standpoint like we actually get to see a different part of the city uh this is the only time we get to see like the snazzy parts of new york here um and he's like coming into the office and taking off his leather jacket and the timing of him like blowing open the door to his practice and revealing his uh, his doctor's like coat underneath his leather jacket is brilliant because he, he proudly proclaims you'll be a dentist <laughs> like, and that was the solution was like we need to find something our that our kid who enjoys hurting people can do for a living <laughs> and, you know there's a lot of people who have anxiety about seeing the dentist for just that very reason um and just like the so many of the, the like so much of the choreography or 
the timing is spectacular. Like him punching the nurse. I'm watching it right now. I'm <laughs> him punching the nurse just makes me lose it every time. It's like <laughs> no, him uh, giving pen- giving the kid the knee that's in the chair. That's yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> and him and like him uh his uh swagger he does to, to maneuver through the office and him tearing the head off of the doll before he goes into the back office and yeah him like putting the knee to the kid and jamming jamming an instrument in there and uh i love the uh the mouth puppet they yeah. made because uh, it very clearly it's it's really obvious how they did this but it it, it makes works. me smile just to think about how they did it because basically they constructed a human mouth uh, and they place the camera inside of it facing upwards. So we get a perspective of someone's uvula looking up at, at uh, Steve Martin, uh, putting a medic- like a, a drill uh, into the mouth. And uh, by the way, the, the human mouth is articulated in such a way that it actually joins in the singing of the chorus, <laughs> You'll Be a Dentist. Um, but the way they did it uh, is he's clearly holding an oversized drill uh, to match the perspective of the lensing and stuff. Uh, and it's it's a cute little effect. It, it's completely extraneous. It doesn't need to be there. But it's like, hey, if you got the money and the time and the talent, fuck, why not? It's hilarious. Um, but yeah, I, I like when he gets into the back office and the one patient's like clinging to the roof, yeah. <laughs> like to the ceiling. And uh, the, the finale of it is uh, uh, we see that he has a shrine to his mother, by the way. And uh, we get an, oh, mama. <laughs> and uh, the whole the whole number concludes with uh the say ah gag of him shooting water into the guy's mouth and then we do a jump cut from uh the guy being instructed to spit water to i think it's like seymour throwing a bucket of crap uh into the alleyway so we cut from like the glossy dental office to uh back to skid row and uh i think this is where uh audrey and seymour have an exchange in the back alley and uh steve martin actually goes to pick her up and we get a a reprise of him doing his uh his bike stopping gag and uh he actually meets seymour and we get to see uh, a little bit more of oren's character in that he can't be bothered to remember seymour's name um, he's also huffing nitric uh, nitric oxide yeah he has a little canister that he uh he snorts through one of his nostrils to, uh, to have a little giggle uh, nitrous for funsies Sorry. not nitric yeah. nitrous yeah, he puts Nas in his nose. Yeah, right. <laughs> like Vin Diesel. Um, but yeah, uh, he uh, he takes Audrey away, and Seymour's pretty bummed about it. I like. I actually kind of like Steve Martin. He doesn't have much dialogue in this movie, but I like when he sees the plant. <laughs> He's like, nice plant. Big, too. <laughs> it's, just, it's really over the top and stupid, but I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, after they've taken off, uh, Audrey 2 collapses on the floor and I see more yep this is where we get the the incredibly famous feed me feed, <laughs> feed me Seymour <laughs> feed me Seymour I thought it was the dude who did the Oogie Boogie song in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas because I mean like maybe less. it was definitely less than 10 years later and he was definitely still alive but it's a different person who sang it uh, I, I mean, personally, I wouldn't have been surprised. Uh, I don't remember The Nightmare Before Christmas well enough to, to put a voice to that particular number. It's very... I, rem- I remember the first half of that movie, but not the second. It's very similar. It's the same, like, really like really big voice, like, bluesy kind of dude. 
Gotcha. Uh, so this is Levi Stubbs, and I love that uh, they credit him in, at the end of the movie as Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops, uh, which I presume was a like a, a Motown group or something of the day. Um, but he, this movie, benefits immensely from his presence. Uh, his voice is absolutely incredible, and uh, he he puts so much character on like every syllable uh, that is spoken or sung uh, in this movie. Uh, I could. That's that's like one of the biggest hurdles for me is like if I was to see an alternative production of this movie, I, I don't know if I'd be able to accept it without him. Did just you? Because it fit it fits too perfectly. Well, they're remaking the Rocky Horror Picture Show for some fucking reason. Uh, the, they are. I believe so. Yeah. I uh, know they already did a like a cable production of it with uh, Laverne Cox as a Frankenfurter. That yeah. already happened though. Okay, then um, I might have been might have been mistaken. Uh, the guy who did Oogie Boogie also did the Gator and All Dogs Go to Heaven. If you remember that song, yeah, I, I remember that song, sure Kyle. That, <laughs> that song is known as a meme. Actually, uh, let's make music together. Let's make music together. Oh yeah, was... <laughs> oh my god, that that sequence. Uh, uh, brought up some feelings as a child. I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel right now. <laughs> like I am, I am massively confused by what's happening on the screen right now. Uh, but yeah, that that song exists as a meme uh, from back in the day, maybe even pre YouTube of uh, the channel Awesome, uh, the Nostalgia Chick, uh, the Big Lipped Alligator Moment. It's basically where a movie has a, a cul-de-sac of like a, a moment like a sequence that's like does this connect to anything anything in the rest of this movie not really so we'll call it a big lipped alligator moment yeah i think i was uh i think i was thinking of the 2016 one but i thought they were remaking it again i i have not heard as such but i would not be surprised it's kind of a big deal yeah. uh, it has a massive legacy it's coming up on what almost 50 years uh in a few years here yeah. so i wouldn't be surprised if for a 50th anniversary maybe they take another swing at it uh this movie little shop of horrors apparently uh an attempt was made uh to get uh a, a remake off the ground uh it's been shelved as far as i know it's yeah, uh, don't you're not going to capture you there's no way that they're going to spend the money on the big uh the big seymour 2 like they did in this movie and even if they do it's not going to be as good yeah, Kyle uh, has a thing about CGI, yeah. and some someday I'm going to, I I just want to have a straight conversation with you about that, like on air, because I, I I think it would be fascinating, just your feelings on on the usage of CGI in movies, just because it, it you you're very passionate about it. <laughs> yeah, I shut off I've shut off the Irishman and the It remake just because I couldn't get past the CGI. And this this is exactly why I'd like to talk to you about it, because mm. I, I think it's fascinating that you, you have such a visceral reaction to it. <laughs> Can't engage. I, I, I get it. I just, I'd be curious to, to hear you talk about Ugh. it at length. Someday. Yeah. someday. Yeah. I'd like to have that happen someday. But yeah, uh, apparently Taron Egerton uh, was tabbed to be uh, Seymour, and Chris Evans was rumored to be uh, the Steve Martin character. Oh, which I actually, like that. I, I would yeah. love to see that, actually. 100%, I would yeah. love to see that. Taron Edgerton, <laughs> not so much, but you definitely got me with, uh, you, you got me with the Chris Evans. Yeah, Taron Egerton is, he's, he's approaching that space where he's becoming the man who sings. Um, he's probably capable of more than that, but, like, it seems like that, lately, that's all he does. It's like, you know, maybe... 
I, I don't care to see another Kingsman, but it's like, you know, diversify. <laughs> Why not? Um, but yeah, this is where we get our first uh, Audrey 2 uh, song. And this is Feed Me. Uh, parentheses, get it! Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it cannot be emphasized enough how incredible uh, Levi Stubbs is as as a vocalist, as a performer. Because he, he really just looked into the soul of this rubber puppet plant and was like, I know exactly what this needs. <laughs> and he, he fucking brings it. And like I said, I actually have a hell of a time trying to conceive of of this movie without him. I just can't see it. Um, funny enough, I actually grew up with this guy's voice uh, like thrown at me a lot when I was a little kid because uh, there was a Nintendo-themed uh, cartoon show uh, in the late 80s, I think, and early 90s. It was called, it was called Captain N, the Game Master. Um, and he played the voice of Mother Brain, who was like the the recurring villain, like the, the arch villain of the hero. And very similar type of character. Mother Brain was like a, a giant brain in a tube, basically. And he, he played it with the same energy. So this voice was something that I was just like bombarded with for a, a couple years of my youth uh, at some point. Um, but yeah, this this musical number is it uh, starts out as a solo uh, from Audrey Two, um, basically talking about how uh, hey, you know, it'd be really great if you fed me some blood, and you know, like all the success that you see around you, it's no surprise that it came about as a result of me growing big and strong, and you know, being displayed in the window and whatnot. And uh, it very quickly turns into a duet though, because uh, Audrey Two points out the window that hey, you know, uh, that girl you like, uh, she's in an abusive relationship. In fact, you can see her getting smacked around across the street right now. And uh, uh, long story short, Audrey 2 convinces uh, Seymour that, you know, some, pe- some people deserve to die and be fed to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of a leap in logic, but uh, the energy of the singing is... And the... the the skillfulness of the lyrics like the lyricism is really impressive because like it it touches both of those realms of being both entertaining but also like walking you through the thought processes uh and emotional state of the characters because you get to see seymour walk through the whole scenario in his head where he starts out reticent like yeah he's like pacing around the room like finding excuses to not feed the dentist to the giant plant but then when he sees Audrey being slapped and like through the window and stuff, uh, we actually get like a neon red light like projected onto his face and like this dramatic zoom in while the music's very similar. Yeah. 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 Music's ramping up and everything and, and the, you know, the color palette and the camera movement help to punctuate his emotional state. It's like he's he's infuriated in this moment and in this moment of vulnerability and weakness, Audrey too convinces him that hey you know guy looks like plant food to me <laughs> he, he gets tells his, him go get it <laughs> he gets his um, marty mcfly energy or no what's the dad's name george oh george yeah george, george Mc- mcfly he yeah. gets that george mcfly nerd energy uh yeah. <laughs> and he pulls out i'm like i was actually surprised the turn that this takes because uh, i started to piece it together i'm like oh wait he does have to feed seymour and I'm like seymour's getting big so he's gonna need some more i'm like oh it makes sense and you would try to uh, feed him, to, uh, you'd feed uh, Steve Martin to him, like, oh, this is taking a turn. Interesting. Yeah, so, um, by the way, the, the puppetry on display, uh, this is something that really deserves to be highlighted. Um, 
at this point, Audrey too, uh, just the mouth portion of the puppet is almost as large as Mick, Rick Moranis. Um, so about what two feet long? <laughs> <laughs> Got his ass. Yeah, yeah. We love you, Rick Moranis. Yeah, I was gonna but, say um, if there was ever a dude that didn't need that, it's him. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs> um, but the the puppet is quite large, is what I'm trying to point out here. Um, but the lip sync and this puppet's ability to perform is I I don't know if I've seen better work, honestly. Like, regardless of what year the film was made, this came out in nineteen eighty six. Even to this day, in terms of like physical prop in the room animatronics or puppetry speaking and emoting and and fucking singing and dancing i don't know that i've seen anything more impressive than this like kyle can can you back me up on that or would yeah, you would I'd, you counter I'd, that I'd, I'd, i don't think i can counter that it's pretty impressive it, it's utterly incredible uh at one point like during the finale of the movie i i, I did a lot of research into how this was all done uh they had 60 puppeteers controlling this thing wow 60 60 people working all manner of levers and and rods and controls uh from under the stage which was built you know elevated so the performers could fit under and wires and cables could fit underneath and stuff 60 fucking people all with individual minds and egos and and hands controlling all these things having to work in in sync with each other it's like it was a massive undertaking but holy shit did they deliver well you're being directed by a puppeteer so you can check that ego at the door, dude. So you better you better fall in line, or you're not gonna be working on this production. Well, yeah, you're you're deal you're being directed by a puppeteer, like arguably like one of the most influential puppeteers of, yeah. of modern times, like fucking Frank Oz. Like like I was telling Kyle off air, like not only is Frank Oz the voice of Yoda, he's also the voice of many of the Muppets, and I found it very hilarious to listen to like the behind the scenes footage and hear the voice of Fozzie Bear telling on set like prop masters and stuff how to do their jobs like in a commanding tone it's like is that fucking fozzy bear telling me how to do my job <laughs> yeah um what do you think dan Aykroyd? a uh, dan Aykroyd as the dentist do you think that he would have been i think that he would have been kind of fun as the dentist uh he i mean he could have done it easily he would have taken it for a fucking walk but <laughs> but uh uh, yeah, there are I, not I, enough. I uh, there are not enough words in this song. It needs to go. There needs to be way more words in this song. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that that's always been his shtick. Um, I feel like they picked the right guy for the job. Yeah. Uh, but Dan Aykroyd, yeah, he absolutely could have done it. Just remember his physicality in Gross Point Blank. Like I'm just thinking, him bring that, <laughs> him bringing it to uh, to this would have been pre- pretty funny to see if you would have had him do that scene. I mean, Dan Aykroyd playing a sadist. Oh, oh my God! It's, like just the, just the way his face would light up when he's kneeing kids. Oh in the chest. yes, very much. And he's got that crazy, like that crazy. He, yeah. I'm not gonna lie, man. If I was on the set with him, I'd be like, "It's all pretend, Dan. It's, it's all pretend." pretend. <laughs> it's like I wouldn't want to do a fight scene with Dan Aykroyd. I'll just put it that way. No, he's like, his head's huge. <laughs> yeah, no, his, <laughs> you'd break your fucking knuckles <laughs> on his forehead. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But point is, I feel like he would get a little too into it, and, yeah. and maybe maybe get a little rough with people. And he's, and he's also kind of a big guy too. Oh, he's big, he's a big dude. <laughs> he's he's long. He's long. He 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 developed more girth later on. But he's always been pretty long. Yeah. Um. But but yeah. 
Uh, we go from that sequence to back to the dental suite. Uh, so back at uh, Oren Scrivello, or basically Oren's uh, office. And uh, this is where we get the Bill Murray sequence that uh, Kyle was groaning about earlier. Ugh. And can you put your finger on what it is you don't like about the sequence? We don't have to go into detail, but... He's just trying too hard, and the joke's not there. It's just not funny. Uh, it's him, like, looking forward to getting... No, no one in the world looks forward to getting dental work done, aside from, like, getting something taken care of. It's just like, yes, I want to go get this done because I want it to be over with, and it hurts, and I want it to go away. No one's looking forward to the process of getting dental work done. So it's not, it's not a bit. It's just not, it's just silly. And it just doesn't land. See, I disagree. Cause I actually, both me and the girlfriend were laughing at this sequence. So I'm Ugh. curious cause, cause apparently, and I was actually really shocked to read this. Apparently this character and this sequence both exist in the Roger Corman film. Mm. I, I would not have expected that cause this is kind of unusual, but this was the Jack Nicholson character actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, no joke. Um, but basically the gag is that Steve Martin's character is a sadist. He derives pleasure from hurting people. And now he finds himself in a situation where Bill Murray is a masochist. He enjoys receiving the, the pain. And therefore he denies Steve Martin the pleasure of inflicting it. Uh, so you see Steve Martin like whipping out larger and more intimidating dental instruments and jamming them into Bill Murray's mouth. And all the while, Bill Murray is, like, in sexual ecstasy. Like, at one point, they take special care to show him, like, digging his fingers into Steve Martin's shoulders and, like, cradling him. Like, he, he is in the throes of ecstasy at having his mouth fucking destroyed by these metal instruments. No. And the whole time, Steve Martin is just, like, seething because he's just like, why aren't, you, why aren't you screaming in pain right now? So I was super excited for Bill Murray to show up. And then I was so disappointed at the end of this, I had to watch him as Ernie McCracken uh, bowl the turkey in... Uh, in uh, fucking Kingpin, because that's one of the funniest Bill Murray moments in cinema history, is him hitting those three strikes. <laughs> uh, his fucking hair in that Oh, movie. my God. <laughs> you don't see, big, big urn. <laughs> oh, my God. He's so funny in that movie. But that, him, the three, I think that happened in real time also when he were filming it. He hit those mm -hmm. three strikes for real. So his reactions mm -hmm. are like, oh, my gosh, it's actually, it's actually working. Yeah, no, that's that's a fun one. That's a Farrelly Brothers movie that I actually do enjoy going back to. Mm, yeah. um, it's been a minute, though, so maybe it's lost some of its luster. But anyway, long story short, Bill Murray has a cameo here, yeah. and it's him and Steve Martin kind of playing off each other. And Steve Martin uh, is – I did like the repetition of the candy bar, though. That was kind of funny. The candy so that's, bar. So Bill Murray is just, like, motor-mouthing. He's going on and on and on about how – he's visited many many dentists over the past few days and months or whatever and uh he has this one lady he goes to all the time because she she's like half blind and she can she has to like feel her way to the problem area of your mouth but he admires her strength he's very attached to her strength and then he's like telling the story about how he went through all this tra this trauma with his mouth with dental work and whatnot and all he got at the end of all of his troubles was the candy bar uh so we keep cutting back and forth between him getting his mouth brutalized and uh seymour in the waiting room with a ball cap uh and a handgun by the way he has a revolver on him mm -hmm. um and we just hear bill Mar bill murray through the walls screaming oh candy bar candy bar candy bar it's like it's like a safe word or something i don't know but 
Yeah, the I, point is, point yeah. is, he he is his pants are are totally soaking wet by the time he's done with this. Controversial opinion: I didn't like him in Caddyshack either. Just not, it just wasn't my favorite. It's not his best work, uh, for sure. But uh, you know, Don't tell as him. a little kid, as a little kid, seeing that movie way before I should have, all I needed was. You know the fucking groundhog or did gopher. Or anybody <laughs> did anybody that didn't see that when it came out watch that at at, at the right time at the appropriate age? No, <laughs> I, I don't I think, think anybody it's an did. American tradition. Yeah, I think it's that's, an American tradition that you be exposed to Caddy Shop well before your years. That that is the booby comedy that you're supposed to see. That's that's your gateway booby comedy. Oh yeah, I agree. Uh, totally, mm-hmm. certainly the case for me. I saw that movie way earlier than was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Animal House a little bit later, but anyway, uh, what follows is uh, Seymour uh, coming into the dental suite, uh, and Steve Martin is ecstatic because Seymour looks terrified of him, and mm-hmm. that's all he's looking for at this point. It's just somebody who'll scream in terror when he puts a dental instrument in his mouth. Uh, but Seymour has a gun on him, and he is here on a mission. He is here to kill the dentist and feed him to Audrey too. But what follows is totally unexpected yeah. and convenient. Honestly, well, <laughs> unexpected for him, but I knew what was going to happen. I'm like, oh, he's going to overdose, and then he's not going to have to shoot him. Yeah, so I love the bit where Steve Martin is getting ready to jam a, a rusty and dull uh, drill in his mouth, uh, and then he pauses and he's like, "I'm gonna need some gas." <laughs> no, it's I'm gonna want some gas. So he he goes into his storeroom and he pulls out his custom made gas mask which feeds uh, nitrous into his face at a constant stream uh, which causes him to laugh hysterically like the joker or something uh but then when seymour pulls the gun out on him uh he's like hang on a second i'm gonna stop this gas here and he breaks the valve and he ods on the gas and it kills him uh so then we get a sequence of seymour dragging the body wrapped in newspaper basically uh back to mushnook's plant shop and then, <laughs> as soon as he pulls the the body into into like audrey's chambers audrey too is like chop it up <laughs> uh the drag in the dead body is always a good gag for me i always find it very funny uh one of my favorites is kiss kiss bang bang that's a great drag in the body moment and just watching young frankenstein uh that that was a good that was a good scene as well but this one's funny too. Rick, just Rick Moran is dragging a body through the streets is, is well, pretty funny. when it when it slides down the stairs, yes. it slides down yeah. the stairs. It goes, <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, um, but yeah, he you, chops it up. <laughs> uh, may not believe this, but uh, Mr. Lars von Trier actually has a very funny uh, dragging a body sequence in the house that Jack built. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but I was laughing. <laughs> I'm curious what the energy was on the set the day they filmed that. <laughs> I couldn't imagine what the energy's like on any one of his sets <laughs> at any given time. I'd be very curious to actually see some footage of that because I like I feel like it'd be kind of intimidating. Like I'd be scared to laugh. <laughs> it's like he, I don't know if it's okay. He seems unpredictable, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for exposing me to his filmography, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, folks da- at home, Ky- Kyle is, is a fan. Yeah, <laughs> Des Moore. Des Moore. <laughs> uh, yeah, folks at home, Kyle uh, is a fan. And uh, he he introduced me to Lars von Trier's filmography. Uh, I forget what the earliest movie of his element was, of the cr- one you lent to me. The one I lent to you was The Element of Crime. Yes. Which... Uh, and then, of course, we did uh, Antichrist. Yeah, which th- those, those two are the... the 
the front runners for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll have to explore more of his filmography because I did find it fascinating. Uh, oh. Interesting guy. But anyway, uh, we uh, we chop up uh, the dentist and uh, feed it to Audrey too, who lets out a, a really creepy laugh. <laughs> this is a really important moment in the movie because like he went to the he went there and he was going to shoot the dentist. I can't remember his name, but yeah, he was going to shoot the dentist, but he ends up not dying. So this is like, there's no turning back now. Like he's brought him here. He has to do it. And at first, I didn't think he was going to do it. I thought maybe something was going to happen. But he goes through with it, and I'm like, oh, shit. We, he's crossed a line now as the hero of the movie. And uh, it's pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> he's chopping up a dude in the alleyway. Yeah, this is this is where the director's cut uh, is important. Like, just the fact that it exists. Because, again, the director's cut actually represents a straight adaptation of the end of the stage version of the of the story the theatrical cut again was producer mandated so we'll we'll get there when we get there but um keep that in the back of your mind when we get to the finale uh so important detail to note while uh seymour is chopping up uh dr oren scruvello dds uh mr mushnick bears witness to it in the middle of the night and it looks like an axe murdering, basically, because he's not aware of the fact that it's a dead body that's being chopped up. Not that it's okay either way. But, no. Um, but yeah, all the all the parts are served up to Audrey too, and Audrey too has a good chuckle at that. And uh, every, I remember as a little kid actually being kind of creeped out by all the zooms into Audrey's Audrey two's gullet, like in, in like into the into the maw basically like oh. into the mouth like actually unsettling as a kid i was like i don't want to be in there that's scary it was throwing me off i was thinking of audrey i'm like audrey we don't do that i mean she does open her mouth pretty big when she's singing but yeah. <laughs> she's, she's a tiny little thing but mm-hmm. i mean she looks enormous next to rick moranis but most we people all do, do. yeah <laughs> <It's> like you <laughs> <laughs> even matthew broderick probably looks like a fucking beast a giant <laughs> that's a movie they can make little dudes <laughs> the movie <laughs> get richard dreyfus in there <laughs> yeah, rick moranis richard dreyfus uh who else is short billy crystal matthew broderick ben stiller unfortunately robin williams has passed away yeah he's the little and hairy one yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, little dudes. <laughs> uh. actually, oh shit! Actually, I had a funny, I had a funny uh, moment the other day. I, I watched uh, the the Black Widow movie, uh, the MCU one, so the Marvel movie. How was that? Um, it's okay. Yeah. Like, it, it starts. It that starts off awful. legit. No, it it's not awful. It's, no, coming it's from mar- you, my from me, that's gonna be awful. If you're like it's oh. okay, then for me it's awful. Yeah, folks at home, if you're not aware, Kyle is not a Marvel shill. Like no. he, he doesn't he doesn't show up for all of them. Although he did recently, uh, he subjected himself to literally all of them, the all the MCU movies. Still love yeah, Guardians, but, but, and I still love that Thor Ragnarok. Mm. Yeah. So the point is, Kyle is not. He doesn't show up for all of them. No. Uh, although he did recently, just as a fun experiment i guess just to play catch up and well, kill kill a few afternoons in the process you'll learn when you when you have a partner or like a spouse who doesn't have the same cinematic palette as you that you really have to try to find something that the two of you can watch that doesn't make you want to blow your brains out and we're like you know what i can stomach these movies and she's gonna like them more than me but it was a good it was a good way for us to have something to watch while we were together and and have some like just know that we have something to watch 
you may have cracked the riddle there, Kyle, as to why the MCU movies are successful. Is because they're they're adequate. Like they're not going to blow anyone's socks off, but they're adequate all around. Yes. Like they they appeal to everyone on some level. So it's like it's they're safe. Every safe. every single one of them are watchable to a degree. Like yes. you can watch them, and you can smoke pot while you watch them. You can drink when you watch them. You can be stone cold sober with a cup of cam- or with a with a pot of chamomile tea and enjoy it. Like and not enjoy them, but watch them. <laughs> Yep, you crack the riddle. There you but, go. Um, yeah, actually, the girlfriend was uh, <laughs> was asking me about like the the upcoming holiday season, and uh, the movies you will have to be subjected to uh, come come December time. Like, are you <laughs> have you cashed in all your chips? Do you are you are you gonna have to to watch all the rom coms on the Netflix? Yeah, just because I'll be out of school and I can drink. So I have no problems with it. Uh, you got nowhere to hide. I got nowhere to hide. <laughs> you going nowhere. I've got nowhere to hide, but I won't have anything to study for. So I can uh, I can actually enjoy my time off. <laughs> I'm just going to have a shit ton of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy needs a refill. Excuse me. <laughs> anyway, oh, no. I, was, I, I polished off close to a bottle of wine watching uh, those... Whenever I was like, we we're like trying to pick out movies. Like, do you want to do a Netflix one? I'm like, what's the wine situation? Do we have do we have a wine like Hallmark movie one? I need wine for those. Well, it's a, it's a shame she's not in town right now because I'm sure you'd be uh, cashing in all your brownie points to to get some horror movies in nope. uh, throughout October. I was fucking stupid, and uh, I've pretty much kissed all my brownie points goodbye by having her watch seven. So yeah, I'm. Oh, done. you fuck you you. I thought she would like it. She likes true crime crime documentaries. She likes mysteries. I'm like, she will probably like Seven. I told her beforehand, I'm like, it's a little graphic in some places, but ultimately it's pretty good. And then I forget about how dark that ending is. And she's like, no, I cannot believe. Nope. Yeah, you're done. Yeah. You're done. You you just exhausted your reserves of brownies. Felt like Robert De Niro in in one sitting. Just in one sitting. You could have stretched that out over three years, you I felt like Tra- Travis Bickle. I'm like, what, why do you not want to watch this movie? It's a good movie. Like, Taxi Driver, yeah. Anyway, the funny bit uh, that came from watching Black Widow was uh, you have uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, what's-her-face? Uh, from Florence Pugh. From, uh, yeah, from Ari Aster. Ari Aster, fucking, fucking yeah, uh, Midsommar. Mid- there we go. Uh, anyway, you have the two of them, and they're both diminutive. And I started to notice, like, they have a lot of scenes together in that movie. And I was like, oh, my God, the framing of this movie looks all weird because they're so fucking tiny. <laughs> and then you got so, David like, they, ha- had to, like, they had to, like, lower the tripod. <laughs> and then you've got David Harbour's fucking monster ass in that movie, And he, too. he looks huge. like the fucking Hulk. Yeah, he's he, fucking he- enormous. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's- like, I... I- He's I huge by that, acting though. standards. He's huge. Like you throw him in with five foot two Scarlett Johansson, but I just I couldn't help but notice the cinematography of so many of the dialogue and just like walking scenes of the two of them together. It's like something is amiss. It's like oh, it's because they're really low to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Mr. Mushnick witnesses the chopping up of the dentist. And then we cut to the morning, and we see that Seymour hasn't slept. He's he's like sitting beside his bed. Yeah, I, and you, it's actually kind of funny, Logan. <laughs> I feel like if you chop up a chop up a dead body and you go straight to sleep after that, you've got other problems. Yeah, yeah. If if you just like quietly slip into the night and just be like, yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> like, oh, I'm gonna sleep good tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then uh, we see the police across the street. 
uh, are interrogating Audrey, not Audrey too, but Audrey the lady. And uh, she's distraught because she's like, I don't know what happened to my boyfriend. They suspect foul play. Uh, he has disappeared. And then uh, Seymour comes up. Uh, he puts on a clean shirt, the cleanest shirt, in fact. Uh, and he goes up to comfort her. And uh, she's not in a happy emotional state. Uh, so she runs off to an alternative set, this, a different portion of Skid Row that we haven't seen before. This was agony for me. Like, this just was so long. Like, I'm just like, can we please get to it, guys? Give me more Seymour 2. <laughs> uh, Audrey 2. Um, and this is where we get the uh, Suddenly Seymour uh, musical cue, which is a duet between the two of them. It's introduced by Rick Moranis and then supported by Ellen Green. She kind of, like, takes the reins of it, though, because she's, she's the one with the pipes. Yeah. Uh, but basically, it's the two of them uh, coming together and... Uh, making known their their love and affection for each other and of course it ends with them smooching each other but it is a long musical number i like the melody quite a bit because like it's it serves as like a i don't know like a heroic and cathartic melody that sweeps into the movie at kind of just the right time for seymour as a character yeah maybe that's what maybe the issue i had with this movie like it was fine i liked it i had fun but it's it's. A, I feel like it was going to be more upbeat. Like, it starts off so upbeat, and then it kind of drops down a little bit with Skid Row. And then it comes up again, and it goes down with her sad sack story. And then comes up again, and then down with this. I'm like, it's, it's just going up and down. I'm like, I thought it was supposed to be more fun throughout. Yeah, it does have an unusual rhythm to it, uh, especially when you get to the director's cut. Um, oh, really? But Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it goes places, <laughs> for sure. Um <laughs> But yeah, uh, this is one of the bigger musical numbers, though, and the the set construction, the cinematography here is very strong. Of course, we get to see Ellen Green really, really stretch her her wings as a singer. Uh, you forget it's her. really incredible vocals. Oh, so you forget yeah. it's Audrey for a minute, like because you do. Yeah, because uh, I think the way she described it in interviews was she bears her soul through her singing, because uh, she only displays like true strength. Uh, in in like fleeting moments in song but never in dialogue it's kind of crazy how this situation is kind of passable uh when you have a character like rick Moranis, kind of a, a dopey kind of you know clumsy guy if you turn this character into somebody like just a real person <laughs> like somebody who's dark I'm like this is a crazy dark way to start a relationship because he was going to kill her boyfriend boyfriend od'd he took her boyfriend, chopped him up, and fed him to a plant, and now he's making his moves on her. Yeah, now he's swooping in and yeah. saying, suddenly Seymour is here to, you know. And, and also the, the unrequited love aspect of things, like, in, in 2021 feels a little creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he's, like, he's doing, he's borderline doing the thing that all the all the ladies today, anyway. Uh, I don't know what was the case back Back when, but today it's not cool to tell a lady to smile. Yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> it's really not cool. It was and, never uh, cool. It. it was never cool, but we're just now. Uh, it was. That it out. was. It was less of a, I guess, a problem that was brought out in public. But these days, it's just it's just pretty well known that you just don't do that. Yeah, if you are walking past a woman who is not smiling and you say you should smile, you should be. You should be uh, responded with "fuck you." Like that's, just, that's the immediate <laughs> response to that. Well, I mean, honestly, it's like you don't know what kind of day that person had. Don't, <laughs> like, don't tell anybody to smile. <laughs> yeah, really, it's just not cool. But like, what I'm saying is like the 
early, the opening lyrics of the song are like him telling her to like wipe off your mascara, like dry your eyes, yeah, smile. You're way prettier that way. <laughs> it's <Jesus>. like, <laughs> no, it's not literally that, but yeah. it's like it could be misconstrued as that. Yeah. But um, point it's it, it's a sweet number. I I don't mind it. It is long, but it is it's nice seeing these two characters come together because they're both so downtrodden like like they're both such fucking losers it's like (laughs) (laughs) at least they're at least they got each other i guess my god i mean that i'm just speaking from my perspective you don't have to agree with it but um yeah they embrace and they have a big smooch at the end in front of the sunset it it, and the music swells it's a good musical beat but then uh we go back to the basement and uh, <laughs> I forget verbatim what is said, but Mr. Mushnick emerges from the shadows and he's like, you're madly in love with her, you schmuck. <laughs> Man, that's like, you're madly in love with her, aren't you, you schmuck? <laughs> I feel like schmuck just kind of was, I mean, maybe in other, in other uh, circles it's used more often, but I feel like it was more front and center in the 80s. Like, schmuck was a really good one. I miss it. Yeah, yeah. it didn't matter what your, your cultural or ethnic background was. Schmuck was free reign. Like, like Everybody owned schmuck, but nowadays it's more of a regional thing, I, I guess. <laughs> I, had a, I had a buddy who got super drunk, and he got super emotional, and he just kind of... <laughs> went off to the side with his partner and I could hear him go, I'm such a schmuck. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) cause you know, he he actually, yeah, he's just, he was super, he he is Jewish. Uh, but yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, he's, it was, it was drunk crying, which is a whole other kind of cry. It's like, you can make fun of that because it's, it's, it's genuinely not genuine. It's just, it's, you're just emotional from too much drinking. I mean, if I was there, I'd, I'd I was to call out to him. I, was, I mean, I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that, but schmuck. Um, yeah. Put, putz is a word I'd like to hear more often in daily speech. I yeah. Putz. Putz. Putz was a yeah, good one. Yeah, putz. <laughs> you fucking schmuck. Schmuck. Um, but he's like, you're madly in love with her, aren't you, you schmuck? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Mushnick makes it known that he witnessed the chopping up of the dentist. So he's threatening Seymour and saying, like, hey, buddy, I got to take you to the cops. This, this is, is no good. This this, is, this whole axe murder thing, this, this is no good. <laughs> this, this is a weird sequence because I, I wanted it to go one way. And it, maybe the director's cut, it does go another way. I don't really know. But it feels like... Uh, Seymour is going to turn a corner here because you, like you as the audience know, like they're moving upstairs and now we have uh, Seymour and um, uh, Audrey too on either side of of the uh, Mr. Mushnick. Mush- yeah, Mushnick. Yeah. So you're like, you kind of know what's going to happen. Well, what happens is, is uh, Mr. Mushnick is like, you know, maybe you're not so bad. Maybe you just like go run off and get lost and i'll take care of your plan so he's like moving in like taking this as an opportunity which kind of doesn't fit his character i don't know like we haven't seen him to be kind of shady like that yeah he's kind of maybe an uptight businessman but he's not shady like in this kind of situation so i would have liked it a little bit better if he was like uh like just really gonna stick it to him like now you're gonna go to the cops and rick moranis has to like push him back into into uh, audrey too 
Well, one of the themes of the story, and again, all the themes are fairly loose, but they are present and they are calculated, um, is like one is economics, just like classism, I guess. Like like the downtrodden masses have have been dealt a bad lot and it sucks for them. Like hence all the imagery of Skid Row and stuff and the whole early musical number of them expressing their their want and desire to get out of Skid Row and and having no roadmap as to how to do that. But the other end of things is uh, greed and ambition uh, corrupting uh, people, uh, as represented by Audrey II and all the all the <laughs> violence <Yeah. laughs> that, that comes about as a result of uh, Audrey II growing and, and bringing more prosperity to the store, but kind of like poisoning everybody's souls in the process. In fact, Frank Oz, on the commentary for, for the making of, uh, basically refers to Seymour's dealings with audrey too as his deal with the devil um which is of course heightened in the director's cut but you know certainly touched upon in the theatrical cut but i i think the idea here is that mr mushnick is feeling the same ambition and is corrupted in the same way as seymour only difference is like he's more upfront about it yeah like like the way i i, I was talking to my girlfriend about it, like while we were watching the movie i was like because she had the same reaction she was like i don't i'm not entirely sure if that makes sense for him but i was like honestly i feel like he'd probably take to it even easier than seymour like if yeah. audrey too had spoken to him th- that plant would be twice as big by now <laughs> he, i think you're right yeah he he would be twice as big <laughs> and i think in the stage version um seymour is implicated more in what happens next i think he tells mr he like lures mr mushnick into the plant's mouth by saying there's like money in there or something Uh. which i don't quite get but uh the way it plays out here the way they frame it in the movie they they take special care to make sure that seymour is mostly left innocent yeah uh, because he's he doesn't do any like he doesn't push him or anything all he does is like distract him um and i like the bit where there's like it's basically like non-diegetic singing of Audrey II singing through the walls about like basically like telling Seymour like bring him bring yeah. him to me I'll, yeah. I'll take care of this for you but but Mr. Mushnick is he doesn't hear any of that so it they're playing again with the, the format it's it's pretty fun but uh yeah Mr. Mushnick is basically like saying like I'll let you go but you gotta give me all your secrets as to how to take care of the plant Seymour's just kind of like biding his time, like just listing off bullshit things to do for the plant. And meanwhile, we see behind Mr. Oh, Mushnick. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty creep- fucking awesome. It's pretty cool. It's, it's pretty creepy. It's legit creepy. This movie does have some legit kind of creepy moments from mm-hmm. time to time. Uh, it, again, some Muppet shit, you know. <laughs> but, weird, uh, weird choice. What do you think David Lynch's uh, little shop of horrors would be? It would be way more dramatic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think the performances would be a little more interesting, and I think it would be darker. Like, I think that the Seymour 2 would be much darker, and it wouldn't be as good puppetry-wise. Well, I mean, he uh, he's not notorious, that's not the right word, but he has a reputation for uh, really pushing his actresses to, to embrace really uncomfortable situations and stuff. Like, what was it, Isabella Rossellini in a Blue Velvet was... The, the critical response to her performance was like how how dare they force this woman to give this type of performance like nude all the time it's like have you talked to that lady <laughs> she loved doing that movie she loved being nude all the time <laughs> like i seem to remember her doing like a, a sex documentary about insect mating habits and it's like her and like rubber 
insect costumes like to break performing mating rituals and stuff she is perfectly content to be naked all the time yeah. she doesn't care you know when you see like <laughs> michael douglas you're like that dude fucks like yeah yeah i can see what you mean she's one of those actresses like no 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 no. she gets down <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely she gets no, down she was perfectly fine with it and a lot of other actresses that he's worked with like the types of performances a lot of them are asked to give in his movies like they really have to fucking be fearless and and delve into the depths uh so i think that's the one thing i could say is that the audrey role would be expanded and her situation would be much worse (laughs) like like it would it would be expanded in ugly ways well i think the production would have been kind of neat too if you watch david lynch's dune you'll see what i mean it's it's pretty bizarre oh yeah no it it's funny. One of my professors uh, in at the Evergreen State College, uh, I think he actually did some of the the model work or like oh. puppetry for that for that movie. Really? Um, yeah, he, he was just like one of the guys in the workshop making weird critters and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of neat talking to him every once in a while. But um, yeah, I think the David Lynch version, like if if the music was preserved and stuff, uh, but just like the production design had his particular touch to it. And like the intensity of the performances was amped up. Yeah, let Probably, him, yeah, say and let I, him I, take over the tone a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it, I think it would have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could not. I could see it actually being. I could see it working in a weird way. Actually, I'm really excited to get to Sweeney Todd because we're really gonna get an interesting, like, coupling with dark, uh, like dark subject matter, but also with it being really funny. Like, it, it it's gonna be a fun ride for you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because it's one that I probably should have seen a long time ago, and it's from that that era of Tim Burton's filmography where it's like, is he okay? Does he still got it? And and the answer seems to be at least surrounding that movie. Yeah, yeah, he he still has stuff to offer. Like he's he's not totally washed. No. Um, anyway, but yeah, the musical number that plays over uh, this business with Mr. Mushkin being eaten. Spoiler alert: eaten by Audrey too. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a juicy fucking eaten. Yeah, like, he's like, big. He's big boy. He's a big boy. Yeah. Uh, and he get, he gets like bit right in the midsection, and we get this this glorious and kind of gruesome moment where uh, a couple of like anima- animatronic prop legs are kicking, mm. and you can hear him like yelling, "Wait, wait, 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 wait!" And they took special care to make it doubly gruesome by muffling his voice because he's in the fucking mouth of the thing, and then it like <laughs> sucks the legs in. And it's like, oh man, as a kid, that was. That was a little scary. Yeah. I didn't like that. Like that was uncomfortable. Um, and the the song that plays over this whole sequence is a uh, supper time. Uh, it's largely su- it has intrusions by Audrey too, but it's largely sung by our chorus girls. Uh, but then we cut to a montage of a uh, Seymour being courted by all manner of corporate sponsors and people with uh, product pitches and stuff. People that want to exploit both he and Audrey too because it's a it's a sales sensation in New York. Um, I was very surprised a, Michael McKean didn't show up in one of these as one of these people. Yeah, actually, he would have fit right in, Perfect. honestly, yeah. especially the musical nature of it. It's like, yeah, sure. Why the fuck not? <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he would be right at home on this set. But um, this song is apparently also truncated um, for the film version. Uh, it's supposed to be much longer and expanded. It's called The Meek Shall Inherit. Uh, it's a very brief montage of just a bunch of people doing sales pitches and a uh, Seymour basically uh, 
appearing on all manner of magazine covers and stuff like he's he's riding high in this moment and then we cut to the plant store and uh, there's a news crew gathered uh, to interview Seymour and we see that Audrey 2 is now uh, up to the ceiling uh, in terms of size like this this plant is literally like 15 feet tall and it's a real fucking prop yeah it's a real puppet that occupies that much space and uh, I I wouldn't doubt if it was somewhat dangerous to interact with because just the mass of it, it's gigantic. This is the most impressive version, too, in my opinion, because this one is coming up next with, uh, we're going to get to Audrey, uh, about to be eaten. But yeah, this one's really impressive. <laughs> and it's and uh, lips moving with it as well. Like, it doesn't, each size is still capable of talking just as well as the last one, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it, it's absolutely astounding, and there, there is something to be said for practical special effects. Mm-hmm. In that, this is this is a true life object that interacts with people in the room and throws its weight around. And in terms of giving a performance, I'm sure that is a huge aid to actors to actually have something to look at and and play off of. Um, and I think it's fitting that Rick Moranis had like the career arc that he did. Um, largely because he he had a lot of these unique roles like uh, in the 80s uh, that not not all that many actors were privy to um, like these days we have uh, green screen actors like people who are accustomed to like performing on a green set basically and just filling in the blanks with their imagination um, and you also have performance capture actors people who are accustomed to uh, donning a costume that's not there on the day you're shooting, but will be applied via computer effects later on, like Andy Circus. I was going to say it's he's... mostly Andy Circus that's doing it. He, he, I mean, I'm pretty sure he has his own school of acting, and in fact, he just directed that Venom Let There Be Carnage movie, probably because he's so intimately familiar with the technology. He he makes up like seventy percent of the motion capture actors at this point. <laughs> It's. I've said it multiple times on the show. It's one of my favorite innovations in in uh, special effects technology. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by performance capture technology. But it's because of performance capture that I have some appreciation for Toby Kebbell. Because normally I'm like, get the fuck out of my movie, Toby Kebbell. Who's but Toby Kebbell? Be- uh, the uh, the counselor. Uh, British guy, kind of long face. Oh, that guy, yes, yeah. Yeah, normally whenever he shows up in a movie, I get worried. Uh, it's like, oh, he's ro- you got to get out. Rock and Rolla, I think, is him. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's also in his filmography. But I don't care much for him as an actor, but as a performance capture actor, he was King Kong in, in Skull Island. Like, mm. he did the ape. That's um, and then he was Koba in the more more recent planet of the apes movies and he was fantastic those movies don't get enough appreciation those are actually they don't they're really good they're really fucking good they're really good and andy zirkus um, of course yeah um but point is the the audrey 2 prop now at its fullest like its largest size is no less well articulated than it was at a smaller size um and again it's a it's a physical prop that is occupying space and like i said rick, rick moranis his career path it's like he had ghostbusters which kind of got him this gig so he had to he had to operate opposite like a terror dog like which was a a post-processed effect and or a puppet that he probably wasn't even on on the set with so he had to imagine the dog chasing him and stuff 
Um, and then you have Honey, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where he's interacting with like miniature people who, again, are not on the set with him on the day. And then you have this, where it's like, I, I have to interact with puppets. So it's like, do I get to act with a normal fucking human anytime soon? Mm. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, he has a little bit of a freak out. Uh, Audrey even calls him out on it. She's like, you're hysterical. <laughs> um, by the way, one of her catchphrases is basically, sure, <laughs> like, sure. Sure. <laughs> like I was telling Kyle, it's like half the time you you kind of want her to just say Mr. J, yeah. <laughs> like 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 Harley Quinn or something. But um, she pulls him aside and she's like, "You had a little bit of a freak out in front of the cameras. What's bugging you?" And of course, the fact that he's murdered, like assisted in the disposal of a couple of bodies, maybe weighing on his conscience a little bit. Um, but he has he doesn't confess in this moment. But instead, he proposes. He's like, hey, you want to get hitched and uh, live off in the countryside? And she's like, sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know? um, and then we see uh, Audrey 2 is not doing so hot. And uh, Seymour tries to leave. And uh, Audrey 2 gets frustrated at that. It's like, hmm, I'm, I'm my, uh, my cash cow, my dude who's feeding me all these bodies. He's dipping out on me. So what do I do? And uh, we get this extended sequence, a several minute yes, long sequence. Several minutes. They really take it for a walk here. Yeah. Of well, I mean, if you're gonna have sixty fucking puppet puppeteers working this thing, it's like you better let them have some fun every once in a while. So the fun comes in the form of having Audrey two drag itself across the the room a little bit and uh, open the cash register, <laughs> grab a quarter. Insert the quarter into the nearby payphone in the flower shop, and then make a phone call to Audrey across the street. And I was telling Kyle, like the the small details here are are where the fun comes, and comes in the form of, I mean, one, Audrey two making a fucking phone call with via Vine hands, and then two, using said Vine to like curl the phone cord like like you know you would expect a person to do while they're bored on the phone if you were born uh before 1997 uh cords used to have yeah if you were before born after 1997 uh phones used to have cords and you would twirl them around because often you'd be stuck talking to someone you don't want to talk to yeah it's a it's a good way to pass the time yes and in the meantime you should probably make a was it I forget which Arnold Schwarzenegger movie it was. But it was like, uh huh, yep, yeah, 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 yeah. Was it True Lies or something? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, I think it was True Lies. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, maybe it's a good idea to record one of those to have on hand uh, when you get one of those phone calls. But I did like the little detail of Audrey too actually checking the 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 change like shoot on the phone after the call's completed. <laughs> that, that was a gag. That was just something people always did in movies. Uh, it was just like, you try to check to see if it, uh, if it went through. It was a gag in Encino Man. Uh, I just watched another movie where it was the same thing. Oh, that stupid yeah. Black Coat's Daughter. They're making uh, collect calls in that movie. Yeah, uh, Black Coat's Daughter, by the way, uh, Kyle does not sign off on that. Hard movie. pass on that. I'm sure Brad... Hard pass. I'm sure Brad at Cinema Speak fucking likes it for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, if I remember, I'll ask. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just long... kidding, Brad. <laughs> I'm just joshing I'm joshing Brad. with you, Brad. Friend of the show. Yeah. Um, but uh, long story short, uh, Audrey 2 makes a phone call to Audrey 1 and convinces her to come across the street because... I don't know. Um, well, it's pretty uh, bizarre. Big, she doesn't know that he speaks. So she's like going over there like, wow, this is really weird. And then it gets kind of rapey. 
like the the like his demeanor with her is like kind of creepy. I mean, it's you, creepy. You think <laughs> it's creepy because he's trying to eat her, but the way he's like coming after her is just very yeah, very creepy. Well, I mean, he's like sweeping his vines up and down her dress and yeah. stuff. And he's like hiking up her skirt at one point, and like she she thinks he needs watering or something like he needs to be fed but she doesn't read between the lines and figure out what this giant toothed plant wants i don't need any water (laughs) and yeah uh, audrey two uh takes a big old bite out of audrey one i thought maybe she was gonna get eaten like i thought that was gonna like it was gonna be the dark like kind of a dark ending to this because like it could go it could go that way where he gets eaten, she gets eaten, and then, like, Rick Moranis is like, I have to destroy this thing now. Okay, so now I'm going to take the cat out of the bag. Okay. Uh, so I've been teasing this endlessly. I'm sorry, Kyle. I didn't mean Fucking to tease you so much with this. tease, I, yeah. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this this is the cutoff point for when the director's cut begins, is that uh, Audrey is in Audrey 2's mouth kicking and screaming and Seymour <laughs> rushes in and pulls her out of the mouth and then they run out the back door into the alley in the theatrical cut uh she takes a spill and then uh he cradles her and he can he confesses in a mild way he's like I did some bad shit and she's like that's okay sure <laughs> um and then he's like it, it'll it'll be okay we're still gonna get our house together um and then Jim Belushi shows up. Uh, director's cut. Uh, this is the pivot point. So she collapses in the alley, and then he cradles her in his arms, and she does. She kind of revisits the somewhere that's green song, and she asks him to feed her to the plant. Oh damn! And he does. What? Ah. <laughs> And it's this big, it's this big like ceremonial like funeral service, kind of like the penguin at Batman Returns, where Whoa. he like he just like places her in its mouth and it like very, like, gently swallows her. <laughs> well, I mean that is a good evil prevails kind of horror ending. I've, I'd be kind of down. It with gets that. worse, Kyle. Oh, it gets really? worse. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll go ahead and proceed with the theatrical cut for a minute here. So Jim Belushi shows up, yeah. and uh, in this version, Audrey is alive. This is the theatrical cut. So Jim Belushi shows up, and uh, he starts prattling on about. I have an idea for a business pitch. Uh, we take a few clippings of Audrey two, and uh, we could put little Audrey twos across america like it's the it, it'll be the new hula hoop it'll be the new pet rock like it'll be the newest sales sensation like the whole country will go nuts for it yeah and basically he's at what he's talking about is a plan that could ruin humanity essentially bring up bring about the doom of all humanity if all these if all of these plants across the country grew to audrey two size there would be some problems yeah uh so rick moranis uh flips out on jim belushi as as you do it's it's just what you do when jim belushi's in town (laughs) get the fuck out of here jim belushi nobody invited you um i feel like i feel like he wouldn't get along with bill murray or take that back i don't think bill murray would get along with him i don't feel like they could be in the same room together on set the same day oh yeah it'd be a really weird energy where it's like what like i wouldn't want to stand between the two of them there'd be some some really cutting looks being passed back and forth because they'd probably be like reaching for the same gag at the same time all the time but like bill's just 
better. Yeah, he is very <laughs> much Jim, better. But Jim, but Jim's louder, so he thinks he's better. <laughs> hey, yeah. Hey, 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 guys. Fuck that dude. What are you doing there? Fuck, he's terrible. My car. I'm gonna go out to my car. <laughs> Uh, yeah. He is from Chicago. No shit. <laughs> no. I was not aware of that. What? <laughs> uh, anyway, in the theatrical cut, uh, Seymour runs in uh, to confront Audrey 2 because he's like, oh shit, uh, people are planning on exploiting Audrey 2 and that'll bring about the doom of humanity. That's not a good idea. So he's like, hey, it's, it's going to be you or me, plant. And uh, we get, I think, probably the best musical number in the whole movie certainly the most complex at least from a choreography standpoint this would be a mean green mother from outer space Mm -hmm. Uh, this is just levi stubbs fucking blowing the house down yeah like literally he's literally about to blow the house down (laughs) yeah literally uh this sequence is incredible uh me and the girlfriend watched it twice back to back oh really well, because we put on the director's cut ending right after, uh, because she was curious, like, what what's the alternative ending in the movie? Uh, and it involved a, a recut version of the sequence, because uh, the theatrical version, Audrey is Audrey one is alive, so there's insert shots of her like looking in through the window, like watching the mayhem. But in the director's cut, she's dead, so none of that footage was intended to be there. So the timing is a little bit different. So they actually did have to change the sequence to remove all the, or insert all the Audrey bits. Um, But no, just basically this involves just the complete and utter destruction of the flower shop. And this, this song is so goddamn catchy. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's one of those songs that's like impossible not to move just a little bit to like, you just like bounce in your seat a little bit. Like you just can't help it. Um, And it's aided by a, a chorus of a little, Audrey 2s that uh, have sprouted out from the giant Audrey 2. So all like the backup vocals are done by these little Muppet-esque mouths that pop up from time to time. They're really funny. Their timing is spectacular. But poor Rick Moranis is throwing everything he's got at this plant trying to fight it. Uh, In the director's cut, he actually does shoot it a couple of times. It has no effect. Um, But in both versions, Audrey 2 like takes the gun from him via a vine and starts shooting at him with it. And then he tries to take a fire axe. It, it, he can't even hit one of the vines. It pants him at one point. Wow. Uh, it, it smashes the desk in front of him. And poor Rick Moranis just looks utterly pathetic and despondent at this point. But I, I absolutely love this musical number. I, I, I could listen to it any time and have a good time with it. But, um, yeah, Audrey 2 does bring, like literally bring the house down, like pulls the roof down on top of Seymour. Uh, and then Seymour emerges from the rubble. Uh and grabs a straight electrical cord and uh, jabs it into one of uh, Audrey 2's vines. And uh, we get one of the very few optical effects in the form of the electrical stuff spraying off of Audrey 2. Mm-hmm. And uh, last words from Audrey 2 before the big explosion is, oh, shit! Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's pretty go. great. Yeah, It's a good way to go, especially because Audrey 2 uh, is pretty fast and loose with the profanity. A lot of droppings of shit. And I, I do like the expression tough titty. Yeah. Um, it's not one I could ever see myself using in daily speech, but I wish I could get away with it because it, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. It's just fun to, it's just fun. Tough titty. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't think I'd use it. No, I, I don't think I, I, I don't feel entitled to use that one, nah. but I wish I could. I wish I was that guy, but I'm not. But 
Um, we get a reprise of Suddenly Seymour when uh, Seymour emerges from the rubble and Audrey sees him. Uh, the plant is defeated. And uh, then we cut to the same set that uh, from her uh, dream sequence when she sung her uh, Somewhere That's Green song. So it's like just, you know, cookie cutter, 1960s uh, homemaker house. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're, they're now married and they run into the house. Uh, we get to see the chorus girls walk by in, in like uh, flower girl dresses or like uh, bridesmaid, I guess, dresses. But apparently the one gal wasn't available for the reshoot uh, because this is a theatrical ending. So this was a reshoot. One of the chorus girls wasn't available. So they just like dip the camera down. So when they get to her, the last in line, it's only from the waist down because uh. <laughs> they couldn't get the same girl. <laughs> Um, and then we see that there's a tiny Audrey 2 in their garden in the front, and it smiles at camera, cut to credits. And we get a, everybody gets their own little image on the screen and a personal credit. And that's the end of the theatrical cut. Director's cut, Kyle, which I will have to see if it's available on YouTube, because you absolutely should see it. Because, again, like if you have any appreciation for miniature work, truly spectacular stuff. Um, and also there's an additional musical number that actually is one of my strongest arguments against the director's cut um so again director's cut represents the ending of the stage version uh what happens is audrey dies she is fed to the plant uh seymour is despondent he runs out of the plant shop and up to the roof where he plans to commit suicide by jumping off the roof this is where i start to get a little like i, I don't know if this was earned like i, I don't know that this belongs here um, but proceed. <laughs> um, and a man who is not Jim Belushi, because this actor uh, was apparently initially cast for this, but was not available for the reshoots and was thereby recast as Jim Belushi for the theatrical cut. Uh, he shows a salesperson shows up on the roof, has most of the same dialogue as Jim Belushi's character. And he reveals that not only does he has, have a plan to put Audrey twos in stores across America. He has already enacted the plan. He already has an Audrey two in a pot that he's holding that Seymour can see. And uh, he even takes special care to mention that there's no copyright for a vegetable. <laughs> like you could, you, you could like you can bring a lawyer to my office. Like you're not going to win. So basically he has stolen Audrey two and has already enacted the plan. So Seymour hearing this has a little bit of a freak out. And uh, heads back downstairs uh, to confront Audrey too. We get the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space musical number, largely preserved, although with all the Audrey footage omitted. Uh, the roof is brought down, and no electrical wire is grabbed. Audrey too survives, and uh, Seymour is entwined in a bunch of vines and is eaten by Audrey too. Nice. And is a is a long drag dragged out sequence that is legitimately somewhat terrifying of poor Rick Moranis not even making a noise, just mouth agape staring into the abyss and being swallowed whole by the plant. That actually sounds pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome, but it's also like pitch fucking black. Um because they they, they throw salt on the wound by having not only both Audrey and Seymour get eaten, but as soon as Seymour is swallowed uh, Andre two spits out his glasses. <laughs> nice, and it's pretty. It's pretty savage. And then uh, we cut to an American flag, uh, like like the opening of Patton, and uh, <laughs> the three chorus girls show up wearing black robes, 
and uh, they begin to sing the song uh, Don't Feed the Plants, which again was apparently the last, like the closing musical number of the stage version. And basically they say like subsequent to the events you've just seen, um, similar events have been playing out across the country because as we heard from the salesperson, Audrey twos are now being stocked in stores across America. And so they tell the tale of giant man-eating plants appearing all over the country and then we have a montage of people buying audrey twos like like they're fucking lotto tickets or something so it's just like crowded grocery stores people just like hoarding audrey twos and then uh, we get a protracted like five minute sequence of some of the most awesome city destruction of like miniature work of giant audrey twos uh stomping their way through multiple cities across america and really impossibly complex miniature work done again by Richard Conway, who is uh, most probably most famous at the time for working on Brazil. It's really incredible city destruction stuff. I'm not a big fan of the musical number, uh, which is probably my strongest objection to this ending, is that to me, Mean Green Mother from Outer Space is really hard to top. Mm-hmm. It's like at the end of that, it's like, I don't need more music, man. Like you're not going to top that. So don't bother trying. And if you ask me, they, they don't. Um, but yeah, the last image of the movie is the army fighting all the RG trues, seemingly losing very badly. And uh, a whole bunch of the plants uh, draping their vines over the Statue of Liberty. And uh, the words the end appear on the screen with both exclamation marks and question marks. And then the last image is an Audrey 2 busting through like uh, the in-universe movie screen uh, and laughing at us. And then the credits pop up. So it's implied that the Audrey 2s take over the world. That's that's cool. I think maybe if you maybe shorten it up a little bit, I would be totally fine with that ending. Uh, It's really, really, really impressive on a technical level. Um, And... It, it's interesting because uh, Ellen Green is, is robbed of an entire musical number in the theatrical cut. Like, when she's dying, she gets one last musical number that's not in the theatrical cut. Um, and also, uh, Seymour's confession is more... Uh, is heavier and more pitiful uh, in the director's cut, where it he really makes it known. Like, he really spills his guts and, like, says, like, I had done some bad shit (laughs) Um, whereas in the theatrical cut they really like hurry past that so it's like the movie's less judgmental of him in the theatrical cut but i get what they're trying to do it's like he made his deal with the devil he made his bed and now he's got to sleep in it and he you know for all the bad shit he's done he doesn't deserve a happy ending and also like it's it's really cruel to say but you know the opening number was skid row and it was two people hoping and dreaming for something better but it's kind of the the movie's way of saying like that doesn't work it doesn't out. get better <laughs> it doesn't get better so it's like it it's cruel but it is it is in in tone with the themes but uh the the problem that was the problem that uh, frank oz himself the director spelled out was that he underestimated how powerful uh close-ups are Uh, in cinematic language because when you think about when you're watching a stage show it's like you're you're you are an audience member you're you're watching people on a stage like move about and it's all from a flat angle whereas in film you get all these close-ups and you you 
you get more under the skin of the characters. Like it, things are heavier, I guess. And so overwhelmingly, the test audiences hated the director's cut because they liked the principal characters too much, and they really didn't want to see bad things happen to them. And I kind of agree. Like I kind of prefer the theatrical cut just because it feels it feels more cohesive given how how high some of the highs were earlier in the movie but the director's cut i i understand why that actually is the intended ending and why that that is how it's intended to be you're in for a roller coaster with sweeney todd uh because there's going to be some legitimate like funny beats in that and then it's dark like it, it is actually a very dark musical um that's why i think i would have been totally fine with like Steve Martin hilarious like comedy bit coming in as the dentist and there's some funny beats throughout the film but then just ending it on a really heavy dark note I'm like that actually would have been I I would have really enjoyed that I think I would have really liked that yeah I mean it it seems to be a recurring thing this month I mean Rocky Horror Picture Show from the perspective of Frankenfurter didn't exactly end all that happy Mm -mm. (laughs) well I mean he did he did kill Meatloaf with an ice axe so yeah, you, you don't do that to Meatloaf. No, <laughs> it's funny. It's just not done. You you, meant, you, you asked me if I was gonna listen to, if I was gonna after I got off the podcast if I was gonna sit down and draw and listen to Meatloaf. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> Fantastic. I literally glad to hear. I it. put on Meatloaf for a little bit and then I switched over to Periphery, but that's fine. <laughs> that makes me happy. I'm glad. I'm glad Meatloaf got some play that. I was day. like, "Fuck you, Trevor." <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't joking. I'm gonna love you till the end of time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was encouraging you. Like it's, I appreciate me love. Uh, but with that being said, I, I guess that brings to a close our discussion of a uh, little shop of horrors directed by Frank Oz. Uh, next month, obviously, in case you couldn't tell, uh, we're reviewing Sweeney Todd. Fuck yeah. Which is Tim Burton and uh, Johnny Depp and uh, Helena Bonham Carter Correct. and Alan Rickman among others. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a pretty great little cast. Oh, and uh, Borat, Sasha. I never get the. Is it Sasha Baron Cohen or Sasha Cohen? That was that right? Yeah, first one was right. Okay, I always get it mixed up. But yeah, he's in there as yeah. well. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Like this is this is always fun when we actually do the catching up on cinema thing where mm-hmm. one of us has never seen the damn thing before. So this this will be a catching up for me. Uh, this week was not, uh, but next week will be. But. Um, that being said, um, if you would like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content, uh, dear listener, uh, you can find all of that located on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of a Twitter at catching cinema, as well as an Instagram at catching up on cinema. So please, by all means, hit me up at either of those if you so desire. Uh, and the show is available on pretty much any podcasting platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Google it. With that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. October is just shit in law school. That's it's.